The History of Philosophy, Founders of Western Philosophy, Thales to Hume. Lecture 6. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Last week we completed our sketch of the high point of Greek philosophy, the philosophy of Aristotle. According to Aristotle, as we saw, man lives in a world which is fully real and scientifically intelligible. His mind is competent to gain objective knowledge of this world, of reality, by the use of reason and logic based on the evidence of the senses. The good life is eudaimonia, happiness, and it is achievable here on earth. And the crown of human virtues, expressing man's confidence in himself and his ability to deal with reality, was, you remember, pride embodied in the great-souled man. Now, if you know anything about the subsequent development of philosophy, you know that this Aristotelian approach to philosophy did not endure in the ancient world. Some five or six hundred years after Aristotle, Christianity began to become dominant. And it preached the exact opposite of all these Aristotelian tenets. It preached that man lives in an unintelligible, semi-real shadow world, as contrasted to the reality and perfection of God. That knowledge depends on faith and revelation. That life on earth is a veil of tears in preparation for a supernatural destiny after death. And that humility is man's proper self-estimate. A series of tenets which together paved the way for that long night of mankind, which we now refer to as the Dark and the Middle Ages. The question is how. By what steps did philosophy pass from the height of Aristotle to the depth of Christianity? It was in this five or six hundred years between Aristotle and the emergence of Christianity as the dominant viewpoint that man fell to his knees to remain there for over 1,000 years. Why and how? That's our topic this evening. The transition from rational Greek confidence to Christian mystic self-abasement. Now this transition period is known as Hellenistic or sometimes post-Aristotelian philosophy and it comprises four main non-Christian pagan schools that we want to look at this evening. The Epicureans, the Stoics, the Skeptics with a capital S, and the Neoplatonists. Now if you want to give a title to tonight's lecture, call it the long-drawn-out death of ancient pagan philosophy. For the record, I should say that the material we will cover this evening is, relatively speaking, much less important than what we have covered in the course so far. Some individual points of these various philosophies have been very influential and survive till this day, so the period is worth covering. And also, of course, it is absolutely necessary to know it if you are to understand the rise of Christianity. But in its essentials, the philosophies of, in their essentials, the philosophies of this period are all unoriginal. They are derivatives of earlier schools. The thinkers of these centuries are without exception second-rate minds. That is why, having devoted five lectures to the period from Thales to Aristotle, a period of 250 years, we can now cover four schools stretching across some 600 years in one evening. But if you think that's something, wait till the next lecture. 
when we'll cover up more than a thousand years in one night. Now, there's a great deal you could say, but none of it is too crucial in connection with many of these points, so I'm adopting the procedure whenever I get to some such tangential point of simply indicating you there is such and such a point here that could be made, and if you're interested, you use the question period to ask it of me, and I'll answer whichever points I get in the question period, particularly if they're ones that I have hinted at during the lecture, but I'll make extensive use of the question period in this respect. Now, in general, <coughs> the main concern of most of the post-Aristotelian philosophers was the realm of ethics, the question of how to live. In part, there were practical political reasons for this. The Greek world during this whole period was progressively losing its autonomy and dominance. There were a series of wars and political upheavals of various kinds. The old, stable Greek city-state order was passing away. And as you probably know, by the second century BC, Greece lost its autonomy and became merely a province of Rome. In this situation, the Greeks felt that they were living in a chaotic world. They were no longer masters of their fate, no longer in control of the world around them. It's not too stretched to say something on the order of the atmosphere of England today in contrast to the 19th century. Fear, anxiety, insecurity progressively characterized the whole period. Philosophers were addressing themselves to the question how to achieve peace of mind in a troubled, insecure world. How to be saved from all the evils and uncertainties of life as they saw it. How to achieve salvation. And most of these post-Aristotelian philosophies are called salvation philosophies because their basic goal is to tell the individual how to achieve salvation. In other words, inner tranquility and peace amidst the chaos of a dissolving world. There is therefore a streak of malevolence that underlies all post-Aristotelian philosophy. The goal is not how to achieve a full life in a rational universe, but rather how to escape being too badly hurt in a chaotic and even a hostile universe. Now against that background, let us begin by looking at Epicurus, 342 to 270 BC, and his most famous disciple in Rome, Lucretius, whose famous poem De Rerum Natura, On the Nature of Things, is a poetic expression of uh, Epicurus's philosophy. Lucretius is first century BC. Now his goal, uh, as most of the philosophers of this period, uh, Epicurus's, was to achieve happiness, as he construed it, for the individual. And he thought that there were two main fears that stood in the way of men achieving happiness. The fear of the gods, or in general, the fears inculcated by religion, and the fear of death. As to the gods, they, according to Epicurus, are one of the main factors inhibiting human happiness. The gods, he says, are presented to us by religious people as fickle creatures. They are supposed to have power to interfere in human life, to inflict favors or punishment at their arbitrary decree. How can anybody have any sense of security if you believe a thing like this? If you believe that you are at the mercy of the arbitrary decrees of these allegedly divine beings. You never know what's coming next. You will necessarily feel anxious and helpless. As to death, the second main fear, 
He said people fear it because they're told that when you die, your soul goes to an unknown realm. Retribution is visited on you by some unknown standard. You're in effect delivered up to some inconceivable dimension ruled over by arbitrary powers. We have to combat these two fears. How? Well, we need an appropriate philosophic basis to make them unwarranted. And for this basis, Epicurus looks back to past philosophic systems and selects the one that he believes to be most congenial to the ethical conclusions he wants to reach. Now you see his procedure here. He does not originate a system of metaphysics or look at reality independently. Instead, he looks back and selects what he thinks is most convenient for his purposes out of what's already been formulated. And as such, he is a philosopher of the second rank, to be generous. And that is true of the whole post-Aristotelian period. Independent interest in major philosophic issues in metaphysics and epistemology is largely past now. The age of real originality is past. Hereafter, they borrow from their predecessors and tinker, making minor modifications within the framework of systems and approaches already established. <coughs> Epicurus decided that the best system for his purposes was the atomism of Democritus. You remember the little tiny uncuttables, the atoms, moving through the void strictly by mechanistic laws, functioning like little billiard balls, and everything on this theory is simply a combination of atoms constantly mixing and unmixing in different combinations. And you recall that the soul also was made of atoms, of soul atoms, which were perfectly physical. You could theoretically have a handful of soul, but they were very round, smooth, fine atoms. Now this metaphysics, as you can see, gets rid of the two fears. The gods are obviously superfluous on this philosophy. Epicurus still accepted the existence of gods, apparently because they appeared to people in dreams and he didn't know how to account for this if there were no gods. But he held that the gods are made only of atoms. They have no power to interfere with human beings. They too are just uh, atomic collections. And he in effect thought of them as a sort of glorified race living off in seclusion somewhere, having no ability or desire to influence or affect human life. For practical purposes, therefore, Epicureanism is an atheistic approach to philosophy, as would have to be the case of any materialism. Uh, though, as I said, he did believe in the gods in the sense just mentioned. As far as death is concerned, well, there is, of course, no immortality on the atomist metaphysics. You are simply a certain combination of soul and body atoms. Your consciousness, your personal identity, your sense of you, depends on a complex structure of soul atoms quivering <coughs> in a complex structure of body atoms. <coughs> Death is simply the dissolution of these structures. The atoms go floating off in new combinations. You have disintegrated. There is no you anymore. And so there's no immortality. And death, therefore, is nothing to fear. <coughs> now, this particular point Epicurus expressed in a famous uh, form, which is not dependent upon his atomism as such. He put it this way, this is not an exact quote, but the essence of his idea. Where death is, you aren't. And where you are, death isn't. Death, therefore, he said, concerns neither the living nor the dead. It doesn't concern the living, because they are living. And it doesn't concern the dead, because they are not. <coughs> Hence, the fear of death is empty. When it comes, by that fact, you are gone. 
Therefore, you will never know anything but life. And it is senseless to fear a state. You will never know. So much for the fear of death. Now, I observe in passing that this is a perfectly valid, unanswerable argument and is amply sufficient to answer today's existentialist uh, who wander around moaning neurotically about death as the catastrophic metaphysical threat hanging over human life which makes everything meaningless and absurd. They simply have no even attempted answer to Epicurus on this point. Atomism, therefore, says Epicurus, relieves us of our two main fears. <coughs> but it brings up a new problem and a new fear, namely determinism. I'm here presenting Epicurus. It takes away the fear of the gods. We are no longer pawns of the gods. But, says Epicurus, are we now to be a pawn of the laws of mechanics? Are we now passive robots without free will? reacting simply to the inexorable laws of physics without any control over our own destinies? Have we escaped one tyranny, the tyranny of the gods, simply to embrace an equal tyranny, the tyranny of mechanics? We must, says Epicurus, find a place for free will within the framework of a materialistic, atomistic philosophy. Now, how are we going to do this? Inasmuch as there is no such thing as mind, apart from atoms, which is capable of making choices. How can you have free will on a materialist metaphysics? Well, to understand his answer, let us leave this issue for a moment and look briefly at Epicurus's physics, then we'll return. At one point, trying to explain the origin of the world, Epicurus hypothesized that a long, long time ago, when the atoms were in their most primitive state, before they combined into worlds, they were merely falling down in straight lines, sort of like a steady rain of atoms. He thought this because he, of course, knew nothing about the law of gravity. He thought that atoms had weight as an inherent uh, property, that they had a certain heaviness, just the way they have a certain shape in themselves. And as such, he thought, left to their own devices, they would just fall straight down, because that's uh, things with weight, as we observe here on Earth, fall straight down if unimpeded. Now his problem was, from this initial reign of atoms, how to get the atoms together to make worlds. We need some collisions among the atoms. Now I should say that since they were in a vacuum, since they were traveling through the void, they all, he thought, fall at the same speed, so none of them would ever catch the others. The question is, how would they get together? We know they must have got together because they now exist in all kinds of combinations. Well, he said there's only one way. If it were the case that every once in a while certain atoms could move sideways, ever so little, just enough to collide with an adjoining line of falling atoms and start a component of motion in the sideways direction, we would thereby generate all sorts of collisions. The various atoms would smash into and away from each other, and ultimately, by strict mechanical laws, we'd bring about all the combinations that create the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax and people and planets, etc. The problem then is to get certain atoms moving sideways. Now Epicurus asked himself, why would they ever do this? By all the laws of physics, they should merely go down. That's what their weight dictates. Yet they must go sideways. But there's no reason for them to go sideways. Well, given this dilemma, Epicurus took the bull by the horns. And he said, 
every once in a while, for no reason, <laughs> not that we don't know the reason, but that even if we were omniscient, there would be no reason, no cause. Every once in a while, some of these little atoms lurch to the side. This is completely causeless, sheer chance, metaphysically, an uncaused event. The atoms, so to speak, occasionally go on a metaphysical bender. <laughs> now, these uncaused, exceptional, sideways lurches are called Epicurean swerves. <laughs> and it represents the abandonment of the universal law of cause and effect. Most of the time, of course, the atoms obey the laws of mechanics and are lawful, but occasional swerves are possible. Now, in the swerve Epicurus thought, he had the solution to the problem of free will and determinism. Because, he says, it's not true that we are pawns of inexorable laws. Our soul atoms also can swerve causelessly. They can break the laws of mechanics. They can escape their billiard ball destiny by periodically lurching causelessly. And as such, we are free to act in defiance of causal laws. And we are therefore in control of our behavior. We have free will. Now, this is the view that free will requires the denial of causality. And it is known technically as indeterminism. Determinism with the prefix I-N. That is defined as the view that causality is not universal and that free will requires a breach of causality. If determinism is the view that everything is inevitable, nothing could ever happen any differently, man has no choice, indeterminism comes back with, yes, he has, because there are no iron-bound laws of reality. Causeless swervings can occur. Now I observe here that this is, in fact, a hopeless theory. Although it's not at all uncommon, many subsequent philosophers have taken their cue from Epicurus on this issue. For instance, Kant or William James, many of the existentialists, many of the disciples of the physicist Werner Heisenberg, <coughs> and they have tried to defend free will by an attack on cause and effect. So it's not in any way restricted to Epicurus or atomism. I say that this is a hopeless position because among many other reasons, a human being has no more control over his actions on the theory of indeterminism than on the theory of determinism. You are no more responsible for actions which are causeless than for actions which are determined from all eternity by forces outside your control. Now, for instance, suppose I were to walk casually by, minding my own business, and my arm lurches out and stabs someone in the path, and that is a causeless event. And I'm then hailed before the judge, uh, to account for my behavior, I would have a perfect right to say, what, why bring it up to me? I was minding my own business. <laughs> and uh, this uh, Epicurean swerve took place. <laughs> In other words, uh, free will and uh, self-responsibility cannot be uh, salvaged by abandoning causality. Now, I assume that... Uh, the correct position on this issue, you know, as it's covered extensively in the objectivist literature, if there are any questions on how, in fact, you do reconcile free will and cause and effect, I'll be glad to discuss that in the question period. For our purposes during the lecture, I simply want you to know that Epicurus is one of the main originators of the attempt to equate free will with causeless action, and thus 
one of the main philosophers to put the concept of free will in disrepute. So much for his metaphysics. His epistemology is without value or particular originality or influence, so we will simply ignore it. Now let us look now at Epicurus's ethics. His ethics rests on what he took to be a basic observed fact of human behavior. Namely, that all men want only one fundamental thing in life. Pleasure, or the avoidance of pain, for themselves. Now this is supposed, in his viewpoint, to be a factual description of human psychology. The way people, in fact, behave and necessarily behave by their nature as human. This is a view which many, many centuries later was christened psychological hedonism. Psychological hedonism. Hedonism, of course, from the stress on pleasure, the Greek for pleasure being hedone, and psychological hedonism because it claims to be a psychological description of human behavior. As such, this doctrine is not an evaluation. It doesn't say it's good, or bad to pursue pleasure. It says simply, that is how people are. Now, if you want a definition of psychological hedonism, it is the view that all men, by their very nature as men, necessarily pursue one and only one fundamental goal in all of their actions. Namely, to gain as much pleasure and or as little pain as possible for themselves. This doctrine is therefore a species of a broader doctrine called psychological egoism, which maintains that all men by their nature are necessarily egoistic, but leaves open what in particular they're after. Psychological hedonism subscribes to that and says, and besides that, the particular thing they're after is pleasure. Now, on the basis of this doctrine, as I said, it was not enunciated, not called psychological hedonism at this time. That's a much later name for it. But on the basis of this doctrine, Epicurus formulates his ethical code. He reasons like this. If this is the way man is by nature, then ethics must build on this fact. <clears throat> there is no use telling man to act for something else if he has no alternative but to pursue his own selfish pleasure. And one uh, advocate of this view put it this way. He said, suppose man were so built that the only thing he could care about was lemon pies. You would be a psychological lemon pieist. Well, if so, when you came to ethics, you'd have to say, if you're basing ethics on human nature, the supreme value is lemon pies. You would then become an ethical lemon pieist on the grounds that man has no choice. Consequently, we reach the doctrine known as ethical hedonism, which is now an evaluative doctrine, and it is defined as follows. Pleasure and pleasure alone is good in itself. Pain and pain alone is bad in itself. And everything else, every other candidate for value and virtue is to be evaluated depending upon its pleasure-pain consequences. Putting it more briefly, ethical hedonism is the doctrine that pleasure is the standard of all ethical evaluation. And you see the relation between these two doctrines. Psychological hedonism is a description. Ethical hedonism erects an ethics on the basis of it. Epicurus subscribed to both, and the first was really the argument for the second, although he did not always very clearly differentiate between the two. Now, I'm not going to criticize these two during the lecture this evening. Both are false. 
Uh, I refer you to the objectivist literature, again, where they're covered. Uh, on ethical hedonism, there's a brief piece by me in one of the very early, I think, the first issue of the objectivist uh, newsletter back in 62. And there's, of course, considerable discussion by Ms. Rand of these topics. I'll take any further questions on these two doctrines in the question period. Uh, also, if you're interested in the difference between hedonism and eudaimonism, that is to say between ethics which take pleasure as the standard of value and ethics which take happiness as the standard of value and how both of those differ from objectivism which takes life as the standard of value, I will be glad to answer that in the question period also. What I want to do now is to look at Epicurus's concept of the means by which the life of pleasure is to be achieved because that is his distinctive contribution to hedonistic ethics. Hedonism as such, he did not originate. Uh, it actually started with a school of followers of Socrates called the Cyrenaics. We didn't mention them in this course. But uh, the most famous early hedonist was Aristippus, who preached in effect the doctrine, eat, drink, and make merry, for tomorrow you die. And his disciples were in practice indistinguishable from the sophists. But that is certainly not Epicurus's concept of how to achieve the life of pleasure. And so he is original eminently in his idea of how to achieve the life of pleasure. He is not a Cyrenaic, you know, uh, gather ye rosebuds while ye may type of hedonist. Now to understand his view of the means, I remind you of what I said earlier, the streak of malevolence and insecurity running throughout this era it deeply affected Epicurus. In effect, he said as follows. In this kind of world, the more you care about something, the more you value it, the more passionately you desire something, the more open you are to being hurt, the more vulnerable to pain you are. If you place a premium on wealth, then of course you watch, I'm updating the examples, but the point is his, then uh, you watch the stock market with your heart in your throat or the latest fiscal policies of the Federal Reserve System and inflation, and etc. Whereas, if your attitude is, money doesn't matter to me, you are oblivious to the ups and downs of the economy. If you care passionately about another human being, you have a romantic, deep, intense involvement, a small insult or snub to say nothing of a betrayal on the part of that person can wound you to the depth of your soul. On the other hand, if you are indifferent to somebody, like a stranger on the street, and he does the equivalent, you simply look at him and say, why well, tell it to me and it has no effect on you at all because you don't care. This is true of any value. If you value your appearance seriously, you would look in the mirror each day and see yourself growing older. If you have a sumptuous repast and you care about it, you have a stomachache, etc. There is nothing you can count on in this world. If you want something from the world, you only open yourself to pain. To achieve true happiness, Epicurus concludes, we must value only that which is dependent on us ourselves. We have to be self-sufficient in ourselves. And only that way can we be in control and invulnerable to the thrusts of a cruel, uncertain world. What we need, therefore, above all, is independence. Not just independence from other men, but independence of reality. Every time we care about something, we give a hostage to fate. 
a hostage to destiny. Every time you want something from this world, you put yourself in the power of reality. You, it has a chance to get at you and to hurt you. Well, if you want to achieve a calm inner happiness, what then must you do? How can you become independent of what goes on in the world around you? You can't, he thought, change or improve the world. That's hopeless. What you can do is stop it from affecting you. The ordinary man lets the world stir up in him passions, feelings, desires. The wise man, he says, should see that these are really enemies, namely desires, passions. It's your passions, your emotions, which hold you to reality. It's your emotions which suck you back into the stream of events of life and which open you to being hurt. Consequently, the wise man will conquer his emotions. He will stop feeling. He will become essentially, essentially emotionless. And in that way, he will become imperturbable, invulnerable. And this is the great virtue for Epicurus, to become emotionless. You see in what way it's a variation, modification, and derivative of Plato's view, but with his own distinctively Epicurean flavor to it. Well, how should you live then once this happens? Well, you obviously wouldn't expect to live a life of achievement, creation, action, of going out in the world and fighting for your values, but just the opposite. A life of withdrawal from the world, of retirement from the cares of life, of indifference to the spectacle of daily fears, uh, daily affairs. Uh, you want to capture it in an aphorism. The essence of Epicurus's philosophy on this point is nothing ventured, nothing lost. Or uh, better be safe than sorry. Wall yourself in from reality, and then it can't hurt you. It's very appropriate, therefore, that. Epicurus had himself built a sheltered garden uh, with, I gather, good solid walls. Uh, and it's always referred to as the sheltered garden of Epicurus. And he proceeded to retire into the garden, uh, live ascetically, that is to say, for a Greek, of course, uh, uh, eat a simple diet with a few chosen friends, hold quiet philosophic discourses, and let the world outside the garden go to hell. Hence, the greatest happiness is absence of strong emotions and cessation of action. Notice, therefore, that happiness is something negative for Epicurus. It is the state of not being hurt. Pleasure for him is absence of pain in the body and worry in the mind. So-called positive pleasure, the actual positive experience of pleasure, depends on positive desires. And that, of course, leaves you vulnerable and anxious. The model of happiness should be, we might say, dreamless sleep. Epicurus himself chose the example of having a good digestion. Being rather dyspeptic himself, he thought there were only two states with regard to digestion, and he's right, there are. Either your digestion is kicking up and causing you trouble, or it's acting well, in which case you don't notice it. Nobody has a positive thrill inside. <laughs> And of those two states, of course, uh, he identified happiness with the absence of trouble. And apparently that was one of the factors contributing to this theory. So it is a complete mistake, historically, for modern restaurants to call themselves Epicurean and uh, the term Epicure and so on. As one professor of mine put it, Epicurus's motto was not at all eat, drink, and make merry 
for tomorrow you die. This is completely false. His motto, if anything, was neither eat, drink, nor make merry, lest tomorrow you diet. You get the idea. Emotionlessness will make you independent of reality, self-sufficient, invulnerable, and therefore you won't feel pain, fear, and worry, and that is happiness. Now this is the essence of Epicurus's view. He mitigated it somewhat because he allowed some positive pleasures if they are not too violent. Don't stir you up, excite you, and bind you to the world again. He himself emphasized intellectual pleasures and the pleasures of friendship as superior to physical pleasures because the former he thought were less violent and more in your own control. He advocated a simple life of philosophic converse in the garden with a few chosen friends about whom presumably you do not care too passionately so that if one of them gets sick and dies, you take it with a philosophic shrug. He uh, said at one point that there were three kinds of desires. One, natural and necessary. And that includes food, drink, and shelter in the appropriately modest forms. Two, natural but unnecessary. And that includes sex and fame. And third, unnatural and unnecessary. And that is essentially the desire for luxury. You simply live a frugal, simple life. As far as sex, here is a quote from Epicurus, quote, sexual intercourse has never done a man good, and he is lucky if it has not harmed him, unquote. <laughs> you see, sex is a very violent emotion, and uh, even at best, if you could tame it, it's uh, a distraction from more tranquil pursuits. Uh, Lucretius, by the way, agrees that sexual love is to be avoided, but he says that it's all right to engage in sexual intercourse <coughs> so long as it's devoid of passion. I leave this to you to project. Now notice, therefore, that we see the process of man turning away from life on earth already begun at this early stage. Here we have a philosophy which is materialistic, essentially atheistic, hedonistic. Now, on the face of it, that is as non-religious as a philosophy can be. And yet, what it boils down to in its practical recommendations is withdraw, give up, retire from life, don't let yourself be hurt. Now, Epicurus really merely represents the start of this process of withdrawal. He is not yet by any means consistent. Uh, he still wants all kinds of things from life. Pleasure, for instance, even if of a negative sort. He wants his garden. He wants his few friends. He wants his good digestion, etc. <clears throat> now, by his own reasoning, if he were fully consistent, he should abandon all of these also, because any one of them could open him up to pain. As, for instance, if a friend goes bad or his garden wall comes crumbling down or is taxed by the city administration, etc., the possibility of pain, in a word, is inherent in pursuing any values. In other words, the possibility is inherent in life as such. If you want to avoid it absolutely, there's only one sure way to do it, and that is death. Dead men, as the saying goes, feel no pain. Now, this conclusion Epicurus did not draw. He is the beginning of an era, not yet the end of it. Um, as you will see, however, the next school is much more consistent on this point, although still not yet fully. And let us now turn to the next school this evening, the Stoics.
Now, the Stoics comprised, as did the Epicureans, an enduring school that lasted for centuries, uh, first in Greece and then later in Rome. Uh, their founder was Zeno. This is a different Zeno from the one that couldn't walk across a room, <laughs> whose dates are 340 to 265 B.C., and he had several uh, Greek disciples. I'll mention the names, but I won't bother you with the dates or the spellings because very few people have ever heard of them. Cleanthes, Chrysippus, Posidonius. Uh, uh, you can just ignore that. Um, uh, Zeno lectured from a porch. <coughs> and since the Greek for porch is stoa, uh, he became called the porch philosopher, and thus the word stoic. In Rome, uh, when the current of civilization shifted there, Stoicism was a highly influential philosophy, much more so than Epicureanism ever became. Uh, you've undoubtedly heard of Cicero and Seneca, both of whom, although they're not pure Stoics, are deeply influenced by Stoicism. The two most famous Roman Stoics are Epictetus, the slave, who was born around the mid-first century AD, and Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome, who was second century AD. And it's often said that this indicates the universal appeal of Stoicism in Rome. If a lowly slave and the mighty emperor both uh, were the leading lights in Rome of the same philosophy. Now, because it lasted so many hundreds of years, Stoicism passed through various phases, altering its doctrines in various ways, and it's usual to divide it into early, middle, and late Stoicism, but that is unimportant for our purposes. We will concentrate on some general doctrines common as tendencies and in various forms to most of the Stoics, and we'll particularly interested in the later Stoics as one of the main transitions to Christianity. The early Stoics, I might mention, the Greek ones, were materialists in regard to the gods and the soul, somewhat in the manner that the atomists were. But as Stoicism developed, it became progressively more dualistic, more Platonist, more uh, this world versus another world, the soul versus the body, and more emphasizing immortality. That was a progressive tendency in Stoicism. Now, the goal of the Stoics was salvation, serenity, peace of mind to the individual in a torn world. Uh, they were influenced in this respect not only by the general temper of the times, but also by a particular school which grew out of Socrates' ethical teachings, uh, which I haven't mentioned in this course so far, the school called the Cynics, the capital C, the most famous of whom, of course, is Diogenes, you know, the one with the lamp that went around looking for an honest man. Socrates had uh, taught, if you recall, that external circumstances cannot harm the really good man. What counts in life is your internal state, not your external possessions or the circumstances of society. Well, the cynics proceeded to develop this point beyond anything that Socrates himself had said or implied. They concluded that you should be entirely indifferent to your existential fortune, that you should scorn all social amenities, fancy clothes, material goods, even ordinary civilized manners. Diogenes uh, was in a, in a bathtub uh, out in the street, dressed very sloppily. In effect, go back to nature and live like an animal, like a dog, you see, and thus the name cynic from Sunos, which is Greek for dog. Cynic literally means the dog philosopher. And they dressed very shabbily. They scorned all the amenities. They were, in effect, the first hippies in the West. Now, in their desire for peace of mind and their scorn for external things, the Stoics are, in part, an outgrowth of this earlier cynicism. And uh, in this respect, 
They are also, of course, similar to Epicurus in their overall thrust of their viewpoint. But they did not believe that Epicurus was independent enough of reality because he still wanted things from this world. He still wanted pleasure, his garden, his friends, enough wealth for leisure, etc. The Stoic viewpoint was that we must adopt the same general line as Epicurus, but more consistently. More consistently. We must stop valuing anything in the external world or in any way de dependent on the external world. We must stop valuing pleasure, so hedonism is out, even the negative hedonism of Epicurus. We must stop valuing friends. We must stop valuing even life. And some of them went so far as to recommend suicide on the grounds that nothing, including life, was of value. But this, I should say, is an extreme viewpoint and did not attract a large posterity. <laughs> What we must do, they said, is achieve utter insensibility, or as it is in Greek, apathy. That is to say, the absence of feeling, uh, 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 which comes out in English as apathy, <coughs> non-emotion. Emotions for them are a disease, an aberration, any emotion, emotion as such. And emotions must be obliterated across the board. The ideal stoic is the man who hears that his wife was just run over, and or that he's just won a $3 million lottery, and or that he just got a new toothbrush with exactly the same reaction. Namely, that's nice or that's too bad, but perfectly calm reaction. They tell the story of Epictetus. I don't know whether it's true, but it illustrates the viewpoint. He was the slave, of course, and that his master was apparently a sadist. And one day was twisting Epicurus, I think it was his leg. And Epictetus is supposed to have said to him very, very calmly, if you continue to twist my leg, your bone is going to break. And the, the master continued to twist, and at a certain point there was a grinding noise and a crack as the bone broke. And Epictetus is alleged to have looked at him without turning a hair and said, I told you it was going to break. <laughs> Now, when you reach this stage, you see, nothing in the world can touch you. This is salvation. Now, the question is how to achieve this state. And what then should you do once you've reached it? On what basis would you then take any action at all? There could no longer be any advantage to you in seeking any particular goal because you're in a state of apathy having abandoned all values? Well, the answers to all these questions require us to understand the nature of the universe and see man's place in it. And if you gain this knowledge, you can attain apathy and know on what basis to act. So we turn then to the Stoic view of the nature of the universe. In other words, the metaphysics of the Stoics. Now, if Epicurus is a development from atomism, Stoicism is a development from Platonism. And the best way to approach their metaphysics is via the argument from design, as it's called, design. A venerable argument for the existence of God on which the metaphysics of the Stoics ultimately rests. This argument was not originated by the Stoics. It goes back all the way to Anaxagoras. You remember the man with the little seeds? And, of course, it's uh, in many, many places implied and all but explicitly stated in Plato himself. But the Stoics are the first school to make this argument fundamental to their metaphysics.
The argument from design goes like this. Look at the universe. Look how orderly, lawful, regular it is. Look how complex, and yet look at the magnificent harmony of all of the various parts, all fitting into a smoothly functioning whole. Look at the purposiveness of all the parts, all meshing together to achieve an overall design. Now, such obvious perfection and design in the universe implies a designer, a powerful cosmic soul or intelligence which runs the universe for some ultimate purpose, which keeps all things orderly and lawful as a part of its purpose. And therefore, there must be such a cosmic intelligence, namely God. That's the argument in design. Now, I assume I interject here that you know the error of this argument. Uh, in essence, it assumes that uh, existence left to its own devices in the absence of a designing mind would run wild and become chaos. Uh, in other words, the argument fails to recognize that order, the law, regularity means the law of cause and effect. That the law of cause and effect is simply a corollary of the law of identity, which is inherent in existence as such. And therefore, there's no such thing as a possibility of a disorderly existence, <coughs> metaphysically. And consequently, there is no need for a god to keep existence uh, in line. ASA is quite sufficient. As to the idea that uh, everything has a purpose, which is a different concept from everything obeys law, uh, you may ask, what was the Stoic reasoning behind this? In general, as derivative philosophers, the Stoics simply accepted the overall teleological viewpoint of Plato and Aristotle. And, of course, purpose does imply some sort of conscious agent which has the purpose. It's a very different concept from law, which does not imply uh, a conscious agent. And that is why the argument from design is frequently called the teleological argument for the existence of God, from telos, the Greek for purpose. This argument, I may say, appears in the Reader's Digest every six months or a year <laughs> under the title, 12 Reasons Why a Scientist Believes in God. <laughs> in any case, the Stoics accepted this argument as uh, proof of God. They did not, however, believe that God is a being existing separately in another world in another dimension, the way we are accustomed to think of God from the point of view of Judaism or uh, Christianity. They took instead the uh, analogy to the human body, the human being. Just as the soul of the human being is not outside the body, controlling it from another realm, but is within the, the body, controlling it from inside and making its behavior ordered. So they said with the universe as a whole. God, the controlling agent of the universe, is also within the universe. We should think of him as the soul of the universe as a whole. The world soul, you see. And uh, forming with the matter of the universe a single cosmic living being. A single indivisible entity. Now you see, this is essentially the standard religious viewpoint but the attempt to give a more naturalistic account of God, trying to base it, uh, base the view of the God's relation to the world on the model of the soul-body relation, which we can directly observe here on Earth. 
Now, this sort of view is called pantheism, from the Greek pan meaning all and theos, God. The universe as a whole is matter infused with a semi-personal omnipresent mind or soul guiding everything for the best. And that totality is, they sometimes refer to it as the cosmic animal. And uh, they give it a whole bunch of different names. Sometimes they call it God or nature or Zeus or reason or providence. Uh, there's a whole string of names. Now, two attributes of this animal, that is to say of the universe or of God, whatever you want to call it, should be noted here. First, <coughs> as already suggested, it is teleological through and through. Everything happens for the best, for a purpose of God's. This is inherent in the argument from design. Uh, the world is designed and kept orderly by God for some purpose or goal of his. Uh, and of course, this point, as I suggested, the Stoics generally took over the overall teleology from Plato and Aristotle. I should say, though, that the Stoic teleology tended to be much cruder than either Plato's or Aristotle's. Plato had his uh, comparatively sophisticated form of the good toward which everything aspires. And Aristotle had his metaphysical self-realizationism. For the Stoics, however, generally they had an anthropomorphic view of teleology. In other words, the purpose of everything, many of them said, at least part of the time, was somehow man's welfare. So, for instance, you get the kind of, you know, crude, low-level teleology. Why are there diseases? To combat population growth. Why are there bed bugs? To get us up in the morning. <laughs> Why do melon have ribs so we can apportion the shares equally, etc.? Now, this is what you call a primitive teleology. And a second attribute of the divine animal. Rigid determinism. Now, the Stoics agreed with Epicurus that universal cause and effect means rigid determinism. They simply took the other side of the conclusion. They said there is rigid cause and effect, and therefore everything is determined. There is no such thing as free will anywhere in the universe, neither in man nor in God. Everything that happens is an inevitable expression of God's nature. He cannot arbitrarily will or choose anything. He's not a Christian God or a Jewish God. He's a Stoic God. Everything, therefore, is fixed from all eternity. <clears throat> Indeed, for the Stoics, the universe goes through rigidly fixed cycles. Uh, they were influenced in part here by their reading of Heraclitus, and they held that at one time the universe was a huge fire, sometimes called the Great Bonfire with a capital G and B. And then, following immutable laws, it goes through various stages of development, worlds are formed, and so on. And then, since after all, the universe is finite, in their view, there's only so many elements. At a certain point, the original combination must be reached again. The original state must be reached again. In other words, we have another fire, a great bonfire. And then we go around the cycle the next time. Since the same ingredients exist following the same laws, we must go through the identical development. It's like a deck of cards shuffled according to an inexorable law. You keep going through cycles, each step repeated in the same order, identically each time. So, for instance, on this view, you have, whether you remember it or not, and obviously the Stoics didn't think you would, you have had this lecture on the Stoics an infinite number of times already. You 
came to uh, the Hilton every Thursday an infinite number of times. And you will do it an infinite number of times in the future. I will give the identical lecture. You will ask the identical questions. I sometimes wonder why it is that, um, that we have to go through it so many times. But uh, you see, the idea is everything comes back eternally. This is known as the doctrine of eternal return. And it simply is a dramatic way of emphasizing the rigid, inexorable rule of destiny. I should say that this doctrine of eternal return or eternal recurrence was picked up by Nietzsche, among other philosophers, and subscribed to by several philosophers uh, much later. Now, you might wonder at this point, well, how can you have an ethics at all if you hold such a doctrine? How can you say what people should do or shouldn't do if everything is inevitable and they do what they have to do? Well, that is a problem. It is called the problem of freedom. And the problem is, if there isn't any, <laughs> how can you have ethics? <clears throat> how can you prescribe how men should behave? How can you hold them responsible? How can you praise them or blame them? Now, this is a problem that the Stoics struggled with desperately, but unsuccessfully. We will note the same problem under Christianity, which had had it in spades, and also struggled desperately with. In general, this is a problem for any deterministic metaphysics and is, in fact, insoluble on such a metaphysics. Though determinists from the time of the Stoics to the present have made endless attempts to solve this problem and to reconcile determinism with morality. If you're interested in the typical modern attempt to do so, I'll be glad to explain that in the question period. Well, then, to summarize the metaphysics of the Stoics, it's got three central concepts which you can put in any order you want. A teleological deterministic pantheism, a pantheistic deterministic teleology, a teleological pantheism, you get it. <coughs> As to the Stoic epistemology, I will mention simply in a sentence or so two points of some importance for later philosophy. First, the later Roman Stoics in particular emphasized that man was born with certain innate ideas as a God-given cognitive endowment to enable us, in effect, to start the process of acquiring knowledge. After all, your mind is a part of God, since God is everything. And as such, it contains at birth, they thought, at least some of God's ideas. Although many of the Stoics also, being eclectic on this type of issue, emphasized the role of the senses in a more Aristotelian manner. But insofar as they advocated innate ideas, the Stoics continued and transmitted the Platonist, rationalist epistemology, and they were thus one of the main links on this issue between Plato and the rationalists of the modern era. And the second point I'll mention briefly of their epistemology. In answer to the question, when can you claim absolute certainty? The Stoics came up with the so-called doctrine of irresistibility, <coughs> which amounts uh, stripped of its fancy language to the following. In the process of seeking an answer to some question, you should raise, consider, answer all possible doubts until at a certain point you will suddenly see in an incontestable insight, in an irresistible insight, that the idea in question is 
unanswerable is true. <coughs> and such an irresistible insight they described as one which was, quote, clear and distinct, unquote. Now, I simply ask you to remember the terms clear and distinct. <coughs> You'll see what happens to this issue when we get to Descartes, who in many ways is influenced by the Stoics. I think you can see that this is a pretty feeble epistemology. And uh, many later Stoics gave up under the onslaught of the skeptics and said, well, I guess we never can be certain of any truth, only achieve probability. All right, now let's turn to the Stoic ethics. And first, their view of man. What is man on this philosophy? Well, if everything is God, if God is all that exists, uh, then a man is only a part or a piece of God. In Epictetus's phrase, man is a, quote, fragment torn from God. His soul is a part of the world soul. His body is a part of the world body. He is not, and this is the crucial point, any longer to be viewed as an autonomous creature, as a separate individual, as an individual metaphysically on his own, owning himself, without allegiance to anything but himself. That latter was the view that Aristotle had held, that Epicurus had held. It was not, of course, the view that Plato had held, and in this respect also the Stoics reflect a definite Platonic legacy. Man is, in their terms, to be viewed strictly as a part of a larger whole, as a part of God, temporarily severed from God, but still only a part of God, owing allegiance to God, in other words, to the whole of which he's only a part. And we know that the universe, or God, has a plan, a purpose, that man is on earth in accordance with God's plan, that he has a role assigned to him in that plan. We know, therefore, that man has obligations imposed on him by the fact of not being a metaphysically autonomous entity, the fact of being only a part of a wider whole. In a word, man has duties which he must obey. Not for reward, <coughs> for gain, for pleasure, for any personal advantage, but strictly because they are his duties. Thus, for the first time, we get an avowed morality of duty, in stark contrast to the approach of Aristotle, or Epicurus, uh, or even Plato much of the time. Of course, it's implicit in Plato, but to a good extent, Plato held that virtues are to be practiced because they lead to happiness, fulfillment, because some advantage accrues to you. The Stoics, however, on the basis of their metaphysics of pantheism and their view that it's hopeless to try to achieve any values in life, abandon the traditional Greek approach to morality and instead make morality an issue of doing what's right because it's right. Doing your duty because it's your duty, period, regardless of any advantages or disadvantages, regardless of its effects on you. A duty morality is essentially any morality which separates virtues from values or actions from rewards. And it is, of course, the antithesis of the objectivist approach to morality. If you will notice, in Galt's speech, virtue is defined as the action by means of which one attains value. And that very definition, of course, effaces the possibility of a duty approach to ethics. 
In this respect, the Stoics are one of the main sources of what Kant later took uh, over and blew up into astronomic proportions. Now, I'll give you a brief quote from Marcus Aurelius on this point. Quote, <clears throat> When thou hast done well to another, and another has fared well at thy hands, why go on like the foolish to look for a third thing besides? That is, the credit of having done well, or some return for it. Is not it enough that thou hast done something in accordance with thy nature? Seekest thou a recompense for it? As though the eye should claim a reward for seeing, or the feet for walking. For just as these latter were made for their special work, and by carrying this out, they come fully into their own, so also man formed as he is by nature for benefiting others, when he has acted as benefactor uh, for the general welfare, has done what he was constituted for, and has what is his. You see, you don't ask any more, therefore, unquote. What is in it for me to be moral? That is a wrong approach. To be moral is to do your duty. Just as the eye doesn't say, what is in it for me to see? To be an eye is to see, like it or lump it. Now, I think you can grasp how the road is being paved for Christianity, where ethics becomes a matter of following commandments because God commanded them, period. Of course, the Stoics are not Christians. They're pagans. They believe that you can establish your duties rationally, not by revelation, but the basic duty theme nevertheless appears in them. And it is, you see, their answer to the question, on what basis should you act once you've abandoned personal values? And the answer is, on duty. <clears throat> now, I should mention that as Greeks, the Stoics were not consistent in their duty approach to morality. It was common for them, part of the time, to advocate duty as an end in itself, regardless of any advantages that it brought, and part of the time to, to declare that the justification of doing your duty is the advantages it brings to you personally. For instance, inner tranquility, peace of mind, a sense of moral virtue, happiness. In this respect, there is not too much difference between the Stoics and Plato, insofar as their uh, uh, approach to morality is distinctive. Both advocate placing something above your own happiness, such as sacrifice, duty, etc. But insofar as they're both Greek, neither ever lost the appreciation in some form of individual happiness as the ultimate goal of morality. So neither Platonism nor Stoicism is consistent on this point, and you should know this for historical accuracy. I may say the same is true of Christianity, uh, which preaches that you should follow God's commandments because he commanded them regardless of any advantage to you, which is a purely duty approach, and yet promises otherworldly happiness for eternity if you do so which is a legacy of the Greek idea that a reward is the justification of virtue, which was carried over by Christianity into a supernatural form. A completely consistent duty approach to morality, which expunges every element of advantage from ethics and makes it completely a matter of selfless obedience to duty, with no value placed on happiness as a moral justification, had to wait for the time of Immanuel Kant. That was his contribution to ethics. In this respect, Kant's ethics is 
the sacrifice pro-duty element of Plato, the Stoics, and Christianity stripped of every mitigating Greek feature. The Stoics, however, are not nearly as consistent or as corrupt as Kant. No Greek, however bad he became, ever dreamed of approaching the man-destroying evil later adopted and proclaimed by Kant and his followers. Well, now, what are your duties in, in their content, according to the Stoics? Well, their basic answer is live in accordance with your nature, with your reason, which is a typically Greek answer. But, of course, your nature is to be a fragment. And therefore, what your reason tells you is nothing like what the other schools said. I'll mention two characteristic Stoic duties, which in their opinion are commandments of human reason. Number one, the duty of acceptance. Accept whatever happens to you without wanting it to be different. Do not burn with passion for the things you haven't got. Do not feel anger or rebellion or protest against the state of affairs you're in or the kind of world you're in, or the social circumstances you're in. Take the course of events as it comes, yield unprotestingly to whatever occurs. Do not lead events as it goes, as the saying goes, but follow them. Why this as a duty? Well, to protest would be impious. It would be rebellion against God, since everything is part of his plan. And, of course, remember also the teleology. Everything is for the best. So if your wife gets run over by a truck, if you could see it all from God's point of view, you would see that it's all for the best and therefore it's senseless to get upset over. And anyway, everything is inevitable. Your wife has been run over an infinite number of times by that same truck. So it's ridiculous. And then, of course, there is what you can call the Grand Canyon argument, although that isn't uh, the name that the Stoics gave to it. But that's the idea. Look at the vastness of the universe, the enormous number of events in the huge span of eternity. What does your particular life and petty cares matter in the face of this? That's I call the Grand Canyon argument because people usually recite it when they see the Grand Canyon. <laughs> now, uh, for uh, all these reasons, the wise man will tranquilly accept everything. And that's, of course, what we mean by a Stoic today when you call somebody stoical. He will see that everything is inevitable, that all's for the best, that nothing external is worth having anyway, that so long as he does his duty and accepts, he has everything worth having, inner tranquility, wisdom, or virtue. To achieve this state, of course, he must constantly will down the enemy, his passions. He must discipline himself. He must see how his desires and aversions are simply nonsense in the face of God's inevitable unfolding. And if he schools himself in this, says the Stoics, one day, if he's really steeped himself in the right metaphysics and the right self-discipline, in a sudden conversion, all of his emotions will fall away from him and he will be truly insensible. Now, it's hard to do this. It takes a process of constant willpower and self-discipline. But given enough time, they thought it can be done. Once you do it, you are truly invulnerable. Now you value only what's in your power. 
only uh, the state of doing your duty, i.e. virtue. That is really, in the last analysis, the only thing worth having if you're to be secure and independent of the world. That's the idea which we know in the expression virtue is an end in itself. Virtue is its own reward. Everything else is inconsequential. Life, wealth, health, fame, you name it. And you see the similarity to Epicurus in this withdrawal, except that the Stoic withdrawal from life is much greater than Epicurus's. Epicurus withdraws into a garden. The Stoic withdraws into his own soul where nothing can touch him, into being virtuous as an end in itself, simply for the sake of doing his duty. That, he thinks, is just up to him alone, not dependent on a hostile world. And therefore, we have an even greater renunciation of life than we did with Epicurus. Now, besides the duty of acceptance, there is a second duty I'll mention, uh, and that is, uh, we'll conclude our discussion of the Stoic duties. So far, uh, via acceptance, complete passivity in action would be sufficient. Simply wipe out your emotions, keep yourself attuned to God's plan, don't uh, desire or protest, be apathetic. And a few advocated a kind of passive state of this sort. But most of the Stoics gave a positive content to your duty, requiring definite action and not simply passive acceptance. What kind of action did they advocate? Altruistic action, serving others doing your duty to promote the welfare of mankind. What was their reasoning here? Well, again, they based it on the idea you're just a part of a whole. Just as you're a part of God and not metaphysically autonomous, and therefore have duties to God and should not seek your own advantage, so in relation to mankind, you're only a part. In relation to you, mankind is a much larger fragment of God. <coughs> And by the same reasoning that the whole is superior to the part, you owe an allegiance to humanity. And besides, of course, it's hopeless to achieve any advantages for yourself in this world. As a Stoic, you are insensible. So no personal self-interest or private goals are possible anyway. If you're not to vegetate, all that's left is service to others. And here I'll give you a quote from Epictetus. Quote, they use always the bodily analogies. Quote, a foot, for instance, I will allow it as natural should be clean. But if you take it as a foot and as a thing which does not stand by itself, it will beseem it, if need be, to walk in the mud, to tread on thorns, and sometimes even to be cut off for the benefit of the whole body. Else it is no longer a foot. In some such way we should conceive of ourselves also. What art thou? A man. Looked at standing by thyself and separate, it is natural for thee, in health and wealth, long to live. But looked at as a man, and only as a part of a whole, it is for that whole's sake that thou shouldst at one time fall sick, at another brave the perils of the sea, again know the meaning of want, and perhaps die an early death. Why then repine? Knowest thou not that as the foot is no more a foot if detached from the body, so thou in like case are no longer a man. Unquote from uh, Epictetus. And one more, which makes the point very clear from Epictetus. Quote, what then does the character of a citizen imply? 
to hold no private interest, to deliberate of nothing as a separate individual, but rather like the hand or the foot, which, if they had reason and comprehended the constitution of nature, would never pursue or desire but with a reference to the whole. Hence the philosophers rightly say that if it were possible for a wise and good man to foresee what was to happen, he might cooperate in bringing on himself sickness and death and mutilation, being sensible that these things are appointed in the order of the universe and that the whole is superior to a part and the city to the citizen." Unquote. Now that is certainly unequivocal. Now, of course, the ground and essence of this viewpoint is in Plato, uh, as we saw in Plato's organic theory of the state. But in Plato, to some serious extent, moral virtue was justified by the happiness it would lead to. You remember Plato, uh, although he was very mixed on this question, his argument against the sophists was, if you behave your way, you will be miserable, you'll have a sick soul. Now, however, the openly religious metaphysics of the Stoics, combined with the deep sense of futility about the achievement of any personal goals on earth, has led for the first time to altruism as an official cardinal explicit duty, not to be justified even in the name of your own long-run self-interest. Now, I, I hasten to point out that the Stoics, as always, are inconsistent on this point. They often said that altruism leads to your own happiness, but that is not their uh, distinctive uh, viewpoint. That's simply their Greek legacy. Now, I should point out that the Stoics, even though they advocated altruism, are often accused with some validity of really down-deep being egoists. And the argument is as follows. The Stoics are really primarily motivated by the desire to achieve a sense of their personal, individual, moral virtue. They don't really sympathize with others in trouble, i.e., they don't burn with pity or love for suffering mankind. Since they're Stoics, they remain emotionally aloof, cold, uninvolved, apathetic. What then is their real interest in helping others? Well, the critics answer, to give the Stoic a chance to exercise his moral muscle. In effect, to do what's duty and thus gain the selfish sense that he has been virtuous. So their real goal is selfish after all. Now this argument is valid. It simply shows that even the most Platonist Greeks had some tie to reality and to reason. If you contrast this Stoic approach with the later Kantian approach, you will see that point. Because on Kant's view, if you are motivated even by the desire to achieve a sense of your own virtue, that fact alone deprives you of all moral credit for your action because you still have a personal egoistic desire. If you get this contrast, you'll see how comparatively innocent any Greek, including even the Stoics, were uh, on these points. And one final point on the Stoic ethics. As is typical of any duty approach to morality, the Stoics stressed the importance of motive, your inner motive, as the measure of your morality, rather than your actual achievements in action in the world. All duty moralities, of whatever kind, Hold that since morality has no existential goal or reward, but consists in selfless obedience to duty, the essence of the moral man is his inner compliance with virtue, and that his attainments in actual reality are secondary or unimportant. 
Now, those of you who know Kant will recognize how deeply he was influenced by the centuries of Stoicism and Christianity on this point. Of course, from an Aristotelian, non-duty viewpoint, this emphasis on the primacy of motive is a fundamental error, because on a non-duty viewpoint, you'll say, the purpose of morality is to achieve some goal in action in the world, whether happiness or life or whatever it happens to be. And you'll say the moral man is the one who acts in the right way to achieve this end in actual fact. His motives are important only because motives lead to action. So you will give primacy to action. But on a duty approach, you'll reverse the order of priorities and say, it's not what you actually do in life that's so important, but your inner allegiance to duty, your motive. And action is important only as an expression of the right motive. Now, this idea of the primacy of motive over action is typically Stoic and has been highly influential on subsequent ethics, particularly the Christian Kantian schools, as I'm sure you can see. In general, to sum up their ethics, the Stoics preached an ascetic morality with dutiful, altruistic insensibility as the essence of the good life. For the record, you are allowed three emotions. Joy at the beauty of the universe, as a testament to God's goodness, hope to become virtuous, fear of becoming vicious. As you see, this is hardly what you could describe as an extensive emotional life. Now let us say a word in conclusion about the Stoics' distinctive approach to politics. Because on this issue, the Stoics did have one crucial contribution to make. They were the first major school in Western philosophy to grasp and to preach what we can call the metaphysical equality of all men. And I'm using that concept roughly as I explained it in the question period one or two lectures ago. The Stoics held that all men, not only males or Greeks or philosophers, but all men have some share in reason. That all men are members of the same species. And that as such, each individual has a certain metaphysical dignity and value, simply qua human and therefore potentially rational being. Every human being they held is to this extent entitled to respect as a human being. And politically, he is entitled to equality before the law. All men, in essence, have certain rights, which others may not morally infringe. Slavery of any kind is wrong. And if they went on, the particular country you live in has laws decreeing that some men are second-class citizens or not citizens at all or are slaves. In other words, that some men have no rights. This is a violation of the proper principles of law, which should treat all men equally. Above the laws of the state, said the Stoics, there are the laws based on reality, the laws of nature, the so-called natural laws. And that was their major political contribution. The only proper country is a country in which the actual laws reflect the natural laws. And those natural laws are universal, applicable to all men, rational, absolute, eternal, unvarying, moral. If the laws of your country conflict with the natural laws, then the moral man is the man who gives his allegiance to the natural law, not to the law of his country. Now, the importance of these doctrines to the subsequent development of the theory of individual rights, constitutional government, and the United States of America can hardly be overemphasized. I don't think I need to emphasize this point because 
uh, I think you can grasp its crucial importance. The Stoics do get the credit for being the first major school to grasp this cardinal political principle. I must add, however, that in their context, it was deeply intertwined with their religious metaphysics and altruist ethics. Their basic grounds for asserting the metaphysical equality of man and the importance of what they called natural law, the basic grounds were not natural, but actually supernatural. All men are fragments of God, they reasoned. Therefore, all men are metaphysically brothers. In a literal sense, they're all offspring of the same divine father. And it is because of this, and because God has ordained the natural laws, that all men should be treated equally. All men, as they put it, are members of one city, the cosmic city, the cosmopolis. Get the idea? Cosmopolitan. And hence, all men have certain rights. And since they said your primary duty is to serve your brothers, you shouldn't enslave him, but live for him. You see, so there shouldn't be slaves. Now, you see the terribly tragic, mistaken mixture here. The basis of what later became an individualist politics but tied to a supernaturalist metaphysics and an altruist ethics. And this mixture, of course, has subsisted to this day in the so-called conservative movement. Now, I trust that this audience knows the disaster of this combination, so I won't rehearse those points tonight. The fact, of course, is that a mystical defense of rights ultimately leads to the destruction of rights. In exactly the same way, and for the same reasons as Plato's mystic defense of concepts, ultimately led in modern philosophy, as we'll see, to the destruction of concepts. A mystic defense is worse than no defense. It is self-defeating. And, of course, that's the supernaturalism. As for the altruism, well, that, I trust this audience understands fully how it is incompatible with the principle of rights or of man's metaphysical equality. Here again, the Stoics represent the other side of the coin from the sophists. They share the same basic view of egoism. The sophists say the egoist tramples over others. The Stoics say, true enough, but you should be an altruist sacrificing for others. And only in that way can you respect the rights of others. So altruism became tied to the defense of individual rights with disastrous results. Despite these uh, terrible errors, however, the Stoics still do get credit for advancing the first germs of what was later to be a profoundly important political development. Well, that's all we will say this evening about the Stoics. Let us take our break at this point. Now, to continue, <clears throat> in the light of the Epicurean and Stoic advocacy of emotionlessness and withdrawal, you might think that things are in a pretty bad state. <clears throat> but even though Epicurus and the Stoics have, in effect, given up this world and said that you cannot achieve values here, they still, both schools, retain one firm tie to reality. Both believe in the efficacy of the human mind. Both believe that knowledge is possible by reason, whether they construe that in the Platonic or the Aristotelian fashion. Neither school, therefore, ever became religions in the sense of demanding faith or appealing to revelation or having a sacred text or a priesthood. For that to occur, one last thing had to go, and that is man's mind, his confidence in his ability to reach the truth by reason and logic. And this confidence was the target of the next post-Aristotelian school, 
the skeptics. If they succeed in their attempt, you will recognize that all is lost, uh, that pagan philosophy is dead, and a new age is about to dawn. Now, if Epicurus is a derivative of the atomists and the Stoics of the Platonists, the skeptics are a derivative of the sophists. <clears throat> they are a school of thinkers also stretching across centuries. Again, they started in Greece and moved to Rome. Uh, the founder is Pyrrho, P-Y-R-R-H-O, Pyrrho of Elis, from which we get the adjective Pyrrhonian skepticism. Uh, his dates I have seen in many, many versions, but uh, something like 360 B.C. to 270 B.C. So he was a contemporary of Zeno and Epicurus. You probably haven't heard of any of the skeptics. They're not much better known than the Stoics. Arcesilaus, essentially 3rd century B.C. Carniades, 2nd century B.C. Anisodemus, 1st century B.C. Sextus Empiricus, about 200 A.D. he flourished. Those are the main ones. <clears throat> now, the skeptics held that knowledge of anything is impossible. That's it. <laughs> Even this, they stated, was not knowledge. You can be certain of nothing. The name comes from a Greek verb, skeptispi, which means actually to examine carefully, to investigate, to inquire. And uh, they were always inquiring and never finding anything. <laughs> and so they came to be called the perpetual inquirers, as against the finders, you see. And finally, the word skeptic acquired our modern meaning. Why is no knowledge possible? Well, the skeptics developed a whole arsenal of arguments. For instance, on the senses, they developed at great length Protagoras's primary argument, remember that perception depends on your sensory apparatus, therefore you don't perceive reality directly, only the subjective effects on your organs. Well, the skeptics, and I always use that now with a capital S as a school, said that uh, perception varies with the species of entity perceiving. Men and dogs don't necessarily perceive the object the same way. It varies depending upon the specific individual within a species. For instance, the normal man versus the colorblind man. It varies with the bodily conditions of an individual. You know how you see spots before your eyes if you have certain sicknesses? The various senses of the same individual at the same time might conflict with each other. So, for instance, the classic case, if you have a cavity in your tooth, your sense of sight tells you it's tiny, and your sense of touch, as mediated by the tongue, tells you it's huge. Your sense perception varies with your different relations to the object. The tracks up close, the railroad tracks, seem to be parallel. At a distance, they seem to converge. Uh, it, uh, your perception depends on the medium between the object and, your, and you. For instance, the air through which the various waves travel. How do you know what the medium adds that distorts? All of these and many, many more all of it, as you see, variations on the theme and the basic argument of Protagoras. In sum, they said we never perceive things as they are. Our perceptions are influenced by all sorts of outside factors besides the nature of the object. 
We have no means of distinguishing true perceptions from false ones because we never get to see the object directly and therefore have no means of comparing the object with our experience. We're trapped in our own world of subjective experiences. Reality, therefore, is unknowable. And some of the matter, what makes you think there is a reality if you never perceive it? All you perceive is a flux of subjective impressions. How can you ever go from that to something unperceivable beyond it? Maybe it's all just a dream or a hallucination, etc. What about reason as against the senses? Well, of course, they said, first of all, reason is based on the senses, so it's no better off than the senses. And then they use the argument from disagreement that all skeptics at all times use. Everybody, they said, claims to have the answers. Everybody claims to have refuted his opponent. Nobody agrees. The Stoics are teleologists. The Epicureans are mechanists. The Stoics are determinists. The Epicureans are indeterminists. The Platonists stress universals and the Aristotelians stress particulars, etc., etc. Who is to know? Doesn't it prove that man's reason is simply incapable of objective knowledge? And as far as ethics goes, all they had to do is take all the stories of the returning travelers as to how the barbarians lived, uh, which is radically different from the way the Greeks or the Romans lived. And that goes to show there's no agreement on ethics any more than in uh, metaphysics and epistemology. Now, there were many more arguments than just these. For instance, uh, there was an argument directed by many skeptics against the idea of axioms or first principles. They denied the objectivity of self-evident truths. Consequently, they said to have knowledge, we'd have to have an infinite regress. And therefore, since we can't do that, reasoning can never lead us to knowledge because we can't derive at objective first principles. Some of them contested the law of cause and effect on grounds very, very close to that which Hume in the 18th century became famous for, in particular Anisodemus, who was a Heraclitian skeptic, uh, anticipated Hume's argument, and followers of Hume therefore loved to dig him up and show how venerable Hume's argument was. Uh, he argued, in effect, you can't never perceive by your senses a causal connection, and therefore what basis do you have for believing in him? And of course, therefore, there's no justification for induction. How can you generalize if there is no causal laws? And of course, there's a whole standard array of skeptic arguments. You put forth an argument and the skeptic says to you, how do you know you're not crazy? After all, it's possible. Human beings become insane. They have delusions. Maybe you're having one. Prove that you're not. How do you know you didn't commit a mistake? It's possible. Human beings make errors. Prove that you didn't. How do you know you're not dreaming? How do you know you're not hallucinating, etc.? Now, Descartes in... Uh, uh, the 17th century, attempts once and for all to answer all of these skeptic arguments. So we will wait until that time to discuss them. And as you'll see, Descartes makes it much worse rather than making it better. And I will finally give you the objectivist viewpoint on all this type of skepticism in lecture 12, which you can add on to the list. You see, that will be a very long lecture, number 12. Some skeptics attack the syllogism on the grounds that it was an inherently fallacious means of reasoning. If you're interested, you can ask me in the question period what was their argument, which had enduring influence, and what's wrong with it. <coughs> Sextus Empiricus, in particular, launched an attack on universals, as the earlier sophists had done. There were no such things. Universals are a myth, he said, whether Platonist or Aristotelian. And of course, that subverts the whole foundation of conceptual thought, and therefore of induction again. 
There's no way to justify generalizations if you can't justify abstractions. And, of course, the skeptics delighted in paradoxes. The most famous is the so-called liar paradox. Now, get this one. Epimenides the Cretan comes up to you. That's the classic example. Comes up to you and he says, I am a liar. Meaning, I'm a universal liar. Everything I say is a lie. Everything I say is false. Including, of course, that statement. Now the skeptics say, is his statement, I am a liar, true or false? And you're trapped whichever way you turn. If you say it's true, then the skeptic says, well, if it's true and it says it's a lie, then it's false. If it's true, it's false. But if it's false, then it's false that it's a lie. It's false that it's false. In other words, it's true. So if it's false, it's true. So they say, here we have a statement which is such that if it's true, it's false, and if it's false, it's true. So much for human logic. <laughs> a very popular paradox among later logicians made much of by the Bertrand Russell mentality. What is wrong with this? The question period, if you're interested. On the question of God, skeptics, of course, are agnostics. Now, I might mention in passing that not all the skeptics were content simply to negate knowledge across the board. Carniades, in particular, was one of the first in philosophy to stress that even though certainty is unattainable, probability is possible, degrees of probability. And he is thus the real father of all those modern skeptics who say, in being a skeptic, we don't reduce ourselves to tabula rasa babies completely ignorant of everything. We simply deny certainty and take the middle ground between ignorance and certainty, namely probability. What's wrong with this? Question period if you're interested. The upshot is no knowledge is possible, and one commentator summarizes it as follows. Hence, our attitude to things ought to be complete suspense of judgment. We can be certain of nothing, not even of the most trivial assertions. Therefore, we ought never to make any positive statements on any subject. And the Pyrrhonists were careful, the followers of Pyrrho, were careful to import an element of doubt even into the most trifling assertions which they might make in the course of their daily life. They did not say, it is so, but it seems so, or it appears so to me. Every observation would be prefixed with a perhaps or it may be, unquote. And here's a quote from Arcesilaus, quote, I am certain of nothing. I am not even certain that I am certain of nothing." Unquote. What about the skeptics? Skeptics are always uh, easy school to deal with because since they know nothing, you can breeze through them very rapidly. Uh, as to ethics, well, of course, for most of the skeptics, ethics is a completely subjective matter. But some of them worked on an ethics of a sort as follows. Harking back to Socrates, who had said virtue is knowledge, that knowledge is the crucial, uh, indispensable precondition of ethics, and since there was ethics, Socrates said there must be knowledge, the skeptics just took the reverse view. True enough, they said, knowledge is the indispensable precondition of ethics, but since there is no knowledge, it follows that there is no ethics. There is never, they said, or many of them said, a rational ground for preferring one course of action to another. What should the wise man do then? The wise man being the man who knows that nothing can be known. 
he should re resist the seducements to which the mass of men are subject. After all, action proceeds from our ideas. Right action from right ideas. Wrong, harmful action from wrong ideas. The wise man, however, knows that you can assent to no ideas, knows that you can never affirm any idea, and therefore restrains himself from having any idea, and therefore from taking any action as much as he can. He withdraws into himself and suspends judgment, and thereby is preserved from having to act. He therefore also achieves apathy, calmness, tranquility, rest within himself, quiet indifference. And you see, therefore, that the skeptics come to the same end as the Epicureans and the Stoics. To the extent to which a man must act, many of them said, he simply has to do what appears subjectively to him or conform to the mores of the society around him. And some of the ancient skeptics were actual priests in various religions on the ground that uh, you couldn't prove they were wrong to be priests. It's all a matter of opinion. And it was very convenient. It seemed to be very convenient sometimes to be a priest. So much for the skeptics. Now you see how all these schools, the Epicureans, the Stoics, the skeptics, are converging on the same conclusion. The helplessness of man and the hopelessness of life. Each of these schools, in its own way, is ripening man for the onset of a religious era. Each is sapping man's confidence in some vital area and preparing him to fall to his knees and seek divine guidance, divine knowledge, otherworldly happiness. We are now on the threshold of man's descent into the medieval abyss. We see philosophy progressively losing confidence. Man's mind is no longer regarded as capable of gaining knowledge. Senses are invalid. Reason is precarious, unreliable. Life on earth is hell, inherently painful, malevolent. We have to give up the hope of happiness on earth. We are frightened, helpless creatures. This was progressively, century by century, more intensely the trend. We are caught in a world we cannot deal with or understand or function successfully. We are strangers and afraid in a world we never made. Progressively, the quest was for salvation. And progressively, it was felt men cannot achieve this on their own here on Earth, as even the most pessimistic Stoics had thought. Salvation depends, it came to be held, on looking to another reality, a true, perfect reality. A reality of which this world in which we live is simply a shadow, a reflection, a semi-real, insignificant byproduct. Knowledge, it came to be held, depends upon contact with, and special help from, this superior reality. Knowledge is no longer possible on the basis of Aristotelian logic operating on sense experience. And happiness, what is it? Well, according to this view, it is eventual escape from life on Earth, from the physical, from the body, and the uniting of one's soul with true reality. So supernaturalism in metaphysics, mysticism in epistemology, intense soul-body conflict and intense asceticism and antagonism to life on earth and ethics, these are the elements that came to dominate the whole era. Now we've seen all these elements before in Plato. All the important philosophers at this time are heavily influenced by Plato. The period from the first or second century BC to about the 6th AD, which is what we're on now, is usually classed correctly as a version of Platonism. 
but it's a version in which the worst of Plato becomes predominant. And the more pro this worldly sides of Plato, the more Greek pro reason sides are progressively ignored and suppressed. <laughs> now, in general, there are two main trends within the philosophy uh, from about uh, 2nd BC on through about 6th AD. One was the continuation of ancient pagan philosophy, which we've been following since this course began. In other words, philosophy which did not become a formal religion with a sacred text, a priesthood, etc., however mystical in content it became. This pagan philosophy continued with a great deal of mysticism and very little originality right to 529 AD, when the emperor Justinian officially closed down the universities in Athens and ended Greek philosophy permanently. And this pagan philosophy consisted of many various schools, generally revivals of earlier Greek philosophers of the more mystical persuasion, especially Pythagoras, there was a whole flourishing Neo-Pythagorean movement, and Plato, there was a flourishing Neo-Platonist movement. And you know that Neo simply means a new version of it. Now the other main trend, while ancient pagan philosophy was dying, was of course, this is after the life of Jesus, the birth and rise to power of Christianity as the major uh, philosophic force in the Western world. A process which took centuries. Uh, Christianity did not really achieve complete dominance until the 4th or 5th century AD. Next lecture we will look at Christianity. But I want to conclude tonight on one pagan philosophy of this period to give you just a taste of what was happening to non-Christian philosophy in this era. You will then appreciate the caliber of competition intellectually which Christianity had, or more accurately, did not have. Let's then say a few words now about Plotinus, P-L-O-T-I-N-U-S, Plotinus, the leading philosopher of the school called Neoplatonism, which was the main transmission belt between Plato and Christianity, particularly St. Augustine, whom we will look at next week. Augustine was heavily influenced by Plotinus and thereby all of Christianity, inasmuch as Augustine was vital to the shaping of Christianity. Plotinus' dates are 204 to 270 AD. So this is the first movement that we have encountered that starts AD. Now let's go straight to his metaphysics. Essentially, of course, as Neoplatonism, the name would suggest to you, he is a follower of Plato, with a few twists of his own. <clears throat> there is another superior dimension beyond the world in which we live. Actually, as you'll see, there are three of them. Why? Well, it's all straight Platonist in essence. This is a world of change. Reality must, as Plato and Parmenides argued, be unchanging. This is a world of imperfection. Reality must, as Plato argued, be perfect. This is a world of variety and multiplicity of the many, but reality must be one. You remember again, Parmenides even called his reality the one, that big physical sphere. And uh, Plato, of course, held that the universal in any category was the one in the many. So reality for Plotinus must be an absolutely perfect, immutable, completely unified existence, which you can call God, or the first, or the absolute, or the infinite, or the good, or the one. The one for the obvious reason that it's one. Uh, it is uh, essentially Plato's form of the good. What is the one like? 
according to Plotinus? What is its nature? What can Plotinus tell us about it? Nothing. It is, he says, ineffable. That is to say, you cannot say a word about it. If you say anything at all about it, you would be making a distinction in the one. You would be distinguishing its existence from its nature. The fact that it is from what it is. Even if I say the one is, exists, I make a distinction between the one and the fact that it is. In other words, I make the one two. And that, of course, is wrong. You cannot, therefore, say anything at all about the one, not even that it exists. You can't say that it's one, or good, or spiritual. It is ineffable, non-conceptualizable, non-describable, beyond anything man's mind can grasp, incomprehensible to human reason. All we can do is say that it transcends all human concepts. We can say what it is not, but not what it is. Now, this gave rise in later Christianity to the school known as negative theology, which held that you cannot say what God is, only what he isn't. Because they said, very validly, that if you give any characteristic to God, you thereby limit him, which is true. If you say God is A, by the very fact of saying he's A, you have excluded him from being non-A. And if he is, there's something he isn't, to that extent he is finite, limited. And therefore, the school of negative theology which grew out of this said, you cannot say God is good. Because what? You mean he's limited? He can't perform evil if he wants to? You cannot say God is all-knowing. You mean he couldn't attend a university class and absorb knowledge if he wanted to? You can't say he's this. Because what about being not this, too? In other words, they held the view to have an identity is to sully God. Identity is incompatible with God. Which is certainly true. <laughs> and God, therefore, must lack any humanly ascribable identity. And this is Plotinus' viewpoint. You see the kinship here with Plato's ineffable form of the good. Now, if the one is reality, of course I'm not allowed to say that, but Plotinus wrote nine books on the ineffable. <laughs> If the one is reality, our physical world must somehow have proceeded from it, or in some way be derived from it. However, not directly. There is simply too staggering a difference between the one, with its absolute immutable unity, and the many changing things making up this world. We need some kind of mediating levels of reality, specifically two of them, between the one and the physical world. So we're going to have a scale form. Going down from the one, we'll get progressively less and less unified, less and less changeless, less and less perfect, till we finally reach the last and least real, least perfect level, this physical world. So we'll have a characteristically Platonist, hierarchical metaphysics. But I'm going to work from the top down, instead of from the bottom up. Well, the first thing to proceed from the one, the second level of reality, is a mind which Plotinus calls the divine mind. Now, what does this mind have as its content? Plato's world of forms. Plato's universals. Plato has shown that these universals must exist, but they're not in the ineffable one, so Plotinus uh, ascribes them to the next layer of the divine mind. 
So we have a mind contemplating as its content all the Platonic forms. And he also thought that this mind contained ideas not only of abstractions, but of every particular instance of these forms. Now this uh, divine mind is less unified than the one, because now we can make some distinctions between the mind and its content. Although it's still very unified compared to our minds, because it doesn't think in any step-by-step -step fashion, it doesn't reason. It surveys all of its content, the whole world of forms, in one unmoving, intuitive, motionless insight. Now, I'm not going to elaborate this or take any time on that. Essentially, he is drawing a perfectly valid conclusion from Plato. Aristotle had pointed out that abstractions only can exist in a mind. Plato said abstractions are real apart from the particulars in this world. Plotinus puts the two together and says both are right. Therefore, abstractions must exist in a supernatural mind, which is the perfect blend of Platonism with the Aristotelian point. And it's the inevitable tendency of Platonism, therefore. And that is why, in all later philosophy, Plato's world of forms becomes thoughts in the mind of God, in a divine mind. And so the universal simply becomes a thought of God. Instead of trying to uh, study the anatomy of the divine mind, uh, which I don't think will be of great practical significance to you, <laughs> let us ask instead, how did the divine mind come to be uh, from uh, the one? Um, the one, uh, says Plotinus, is inherently creative. Of course, we can't say that, but he said it. <laughs> and it, in effect, spills over or radiates out a process which Plotinus calls emanation, emanation, which is his term for the process by which one level of reality gives rise to the next. What is the nature of emanation? It can't be explained, says Plotinus, literally. All we can do is give you a metaphor. Think of the one as an analogy, as a brilliant light, for instance, like the sun of Plato. You see how derivative all these philosophies are. Think of the one as a brilliant light, then light, waves, uh, light rays stream forth from the sun, and at a certain distance you have an area which is a little less bright than the sun itself. The rays weaken, it gets a little darker, and therefore you have a region or dimension of reality which is less perfect, less unified, and so on, than the light source. Of course, you have to think of the sun as possessing infinite energy, it never gets depleted, it always shines as brightly as ever. And of course, also, the emanation process, says Plotinus, takes no time to occur. So you have to imagine that light takes no time to travel from the sun to the next region, if the analogy is to be exact. In other words, for Plotinus, the emanation process does not occur at some point in time. There never was a beginning of the divine mind. It had eternally emanated from the one. And this, you see, is the last vestige of the Greek view that the universe is eternal, as opposed to being created at some point in time. Well, now let's go on. The divine mind wants to imitate the world's creativeness, uh, the one's creativeness. So it emanates the next level, the third dimension, uh, which Plotinus calls the world soul. And that, you see, is the obvious uh, stoic element, which also, I should say, Plato in the dialogue that Timaeus also sub subscribed to the idea of a world soul, soul of the whole world. Now, it's not too important what he thought the world soul was. In effect, it also thinks but now it thinks more like us, discursively, step by step. 
And therefore, its mental processes are infected with multiplicity, with change. It doesn't have the emotionless contemplation of the divine mind. And of course, since soul for the whole Greek tradition is the principle of life, and life is inherently bound up with change and motion, the world soul is much less perfect, unified, or unchanging than the higher levels. In terms of the metaphor, we're getting farther from the sun. It's getting darker. Next stage, the world soul emanates individual souls, which emanate bodies and then inhabit them. In other words, the material world as we know it is emanated from the world soul as the last level. When we reach the material world, we have the maximum of change, multiplicity, imperfection, etc. Therefore, the lowest in reality. Now you see here, I can't resist adding the real primacy of consciousness. Minds and souls create matter, create bodies. By the time we reach Plotinus, this primacy of consciousness, which I said was implicit in Plato, has become deliberate and adopted as a matter of principle, not only by Plotinus, but by all the distinctive philosophies of the period, including Christianity. They all objected to the Aristotelian idea that consciousness, or as they would put it, mind or soul, was a metaphysically passive principle, dependent on matter, devoted only to discovering the facts of the material world. This spiritual, they all insisted, is above the material, it has metaphysical primacy. It has evaluative primacy. It comes first in the order of being. And matter is simply a derivative of a spiritual principle. In a word, consciousness is independent of matter. It is a metaphysically productive principle. Whereas matter is the comparatively unreal, the derivative, simply the resultant of the operations of mind. Matter is a product of spirit. This is the true primacy of consciousness now become explicit. And it is the legacy of this mentality that you hear all around you on the street today asking where did the universe come from? And you say it always existed and they say but it couldn't always have existed. And you say why not? You say well something must have created it. Some mind, God, etc. And you say well but did God always exist? And they say yes. You say well then I, you're no farther ahead. And they say well yes but even so, I am farther ahead because God is a mind, and I can take a mind as a primary, but I can't take a physical reality as a primary. Now that is the mentality throughout this uh, late Hellenistic period, exemplified by Plotinus, although he himself as a Greek personally believed that matter had always existed, had eternally been emanated from the world soul. Now, note therefore, that over and above the material world, we have three non-material principles which ultimately give rise to this world. The one, the divine mind, the world soul. Or as I can say, we have a trinity of divine non-material principles over and against matter. Now this is very common in all the pagan philosophies of this period. Usually held that you need two intermediaries to bridge the gap between God and the physical world. And consequently, an otherworldly trinity was very common. It was, of course, taken over intact by Christianity, as you know, and became in the Christian version the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which was conceived by Christian theology quite on the model of Plotinus. And, of course, there was nothing distinctive in the Hellenistic worship of three. The Pythagoreans had got all excited about three back in their day. 
And Hegel and Marx got all excited about three in the 19th century, so uh, this seems to be a perennial disease of philosophy. Well, now let's continue. Plotinus had to face a problem that was long faced by religious philosophers. It was faced by Plato, uh, even though he's not fully a religion, of course. It was faced certainly by the Stoics. It was faced by the Christians. And it is the problem of evil. What is this problem? Well, the problem is very simple. Evil things occur in the world. Earthquakes, volcanoes, which pour lava on peaceful, virtuous little Italian communities at the foot of them. <laughs> Diseases which run riot and attack the just as well as the unjust. Slaughter, wars, etc. Now the problem of evil is simply, if the universe is ruled by an all-powerful, good power, why does he permit evil? Now this has been a standard objection to religion ever since uh, religion first appeared on the scene. Epicurus, of course, who did not have to answer this problem, being essentially atheistic, put the problem to the Stoics as follows. He said, there are only four possibilities, in theory. Either God wants to remove evil from the world, but can't, because he's not powerful enough, which would show weakness on God's part, which is contrary to God's nature, as you describe it. Or, God is able to remove evil from the world, but he doesn't want to, which would show malignity which is equally contrary to God's nature. Or God is neither able nor willing. And so he'd be both impotent and malignant. Or finally, he's both willing and able, which is alone consonant with God as you describe him. Whence then comes evil? Why doesn't God remove it? That was how Epicurus posed the problem. And uh, religions have attempted every imaginable and many unimaginable answers to this problem, which usually boil down to what we call evil doesn't really exist. It's only evil from a limited human perspective. If you could only see the universe as a whole from God's point of view, you'd see that everything has a place in his scheme and his plan. And really, therefore, what we call evil is actually good if seen from God's viewpoint. Now, the only trouble wrong with this answer is that the, the advocates of it go on to say, of course, as human beings, we cannot see everything from God's viewpoint. And therefore, if you're a human being, this answer is opaque and ungraspable. If only you weren't human, it amounts to you'd know the answer. Now, this is an errant appeal to mysticism. But Plotinus, with his emanation scheme, at least has a better answer to the problem of evil. And because it was a somewhat better answer than the standard ones, uh, it was attached to by Augustine and by Christianity. Although, of course, if Christianity, aiming for popular success, tricked it all up with stories about Adam and Eve and so on, but that is not the essential point. So here's Plotinus on the problem of evil. Evil, first of all, he says, is associated with matter, with the physical. Now, in view of his platonic anti-matter tendencies and uh, the soul-body conflict that was endemic to this whole period, that shouldn't surprise you. So the problem of evil is really the problem of matter. But now what is matter, asked Plotinus? Is it something positive? If it is, we could blame the one for emanating it. We could hold the one responsible for evil. But, says Plotinus, the actual fact is 
matter is simply the fourth and last level of the emanation process. If we use the metaphor of the sun, that is to say S-U-N, uh, it's been getting darker and darker as we leave the one. Well, at some point it gets really dark. There's no more light. We get sheer darkness, and that is matter. The essential ingredient of our physical world. So matter is not something positive. It is merely that region of reality characterized by the absence of the energy, the light, the perfection of the one. In itself, matter is unreal, an absence, non-being. And here again, you see the enormous influence of Plato, his idea that the distinctive constituent of the physical world is empty space, the principle of non-being. Matter for Plotinus is in effect where the one's rays run out. And as such, you cannot blame the one for matter, or therefore for evil, because that's inherent in the process of emanation. It can't emanate unless the thing is not it. In terms of the metaphor, it can't radiate light without the light being some distance from it. And therefore, it's darker, and therefore less perfect. In a word, if the one is perfection, Anything emanating from it, anything at a distance from it, must in logic be less perfect, must in logic have some metaphysical defect. So it's not the one's fault. The one is the source of light, and thus is responsible for light. In other words, for all the reality and perfection in the universe. The evil, the physical, is merely the darkness that the one didn't get to. It's not something positively existing, it's an absence. Now, this principle was taken over by Christianity intact and used in the following form. God is the good. Evil is the deficient, the defective, whatever is not God. Therefore, evil is inherent in the world precisely because it's not God. But since it is nothing positive, God cannot be held responsible for it. You get it? And therefore, there is evil. But God is not responsible. That's the essential Christian solution to the problem of evil, the most sophisticated one, and it's pure Plotinus, as you see. And ultimately, it's Plato, of course. Now, I should mention that the Stoics had a whole variety of less profound answers to the problem of evil, quite different from this one. And a lot of theirs are still kicking around today, uh, and you might hear, it, uh, hear them. If you're interested, ask in the question period. Now, I have one last word on Plotinus. How did he know all of this? <laughs> well, uh, in part, he claimed to offer reasons on a, of a Platonist sort, as I tried to sketch in briefly. However, what about his views on the one and the emanation process? How did he know, if not by reason? And his answer was, to know the one, you must undergo a special process, which involves a long struggle a long period of asceticism, a long period of self-discipline. You have to, in effect, empty your mind at a certain point of all content, all images, all thoughts, all sense experiences, all emotions, all reason. You have to, in effect, jump outside your narrow self and the whole physical world. And that's possible, he claims. And if successful, if you do it successfully, you will suddenly lose all sense of your own individuality, and of your reason, with all of its distinctions and multiplicity and logic and so on, you will suddenly merge directly with the one, and you will see 
what it is. Which, of course, you can communicate to anyone who hasn't had the experience. Now, this state came to be called ecstasy from the Greek words meaning ex and sto, to stand outside yourself. Stand outside is what ecstasy literally means. So it does not mean in this technical usage simply strong pleasure. But uh, the state of literally jumping outside of the confines of yourself and the world and merging with deity in an incommunicable trance. And uh, Plotinus was the great champion of ecstasy. And uh, uh, his biographers report that he experienced it four times in six years, which I would imagine is a great strength. Uh, it's very similar, as you see, to Plato's uh, uh, view of how you get to know the form of the good. Today's mystics, I may say, put forth two allegedly rational arguments in favor of ecstasy and why that reveals truths un unattainable by any other means. If you're interested in those modern attempts uh, to justify ecstasy, uh, question period. Well, I don't think I have to say more on Plotinus. You must have enough to get the message. Uh, on his ethics, just in a word, it's just what you would imagine it to be. By now, you should be able to tell from the first three sentences of philosopher's metaphysics what everything else is going to be, because we've passed the age of anybody original. The ultimate goal of life is to escape this earth, says Plotinus, to go back home, in effect, to the true reality, to the spiritual world. And uh, to be slightly flippant about it, there's two ways, the short way home and the long way home. The short way home is ecstasy, which you can hope to do for a brief period here on earth. The long way home is via the wheel of birth. In other words, Plotinus accepted, along with Plato, the whole Pythagorean reincarnation scheme with the ultimate hope of finally escaping the wheel of birth and staying at home permanently. Meanwhile, on earth, you should live ascetically, turn away from physical pleasures. Plotinus was a staunch, intense advocate of the mind-body opposition. He was supposed to have been ashamed of the fact that he even possessed a body, etc. In a word, the standard Platonist approach to ethics, but now much more intense than in Plato, though still Plotinus is a, uh, a pleasure seeker in relation to what is to come. <laughs> now you see to what depths and by what main steps Greek philosophy in every branch has degenerated. It has become errant mysticism. But pagan Neoplatonism was not the wave of the future, not in the form I just presented it to you. Plotinus's philosophy, which is typical of what ancient philosophers were saying at this period, is too ab ancient pagan philosophy, is too abstract and remote to catch on with the man in the street in that form. Its essence, of course, caught on. But in the form of a complex emanation scheme with a super divine mind and a world soul and all that, it's too abstract. Now, the man in the street during these centuries, or at least great, great numbers of them, also wanted the same basic things. He wanted another reality. He also felt helpless on earth. He also wanted escape and salvation, having been shaped and molded for centuries by all these philosophies. And these desires of the men on the street 
who are ministered to by the development during these centuries of a number of low-level, popular mystery cults, usually imported from the Orient, which grew steadily in the Roman Empire during these centuries. Now, these cults were primitive religions, something on the order of the Orphics that we looked at some weeks ago. They all promised salvation to their followers. There was the cult of Isis and Osiris, the cult of the Great Mother, the cult of Mithra, Mithraism, etc. Many of them derived from primitive, even savage fertility rites. Now they had a lot of features in common, most of these cults. Usually they offered salvation to the believers. They promised immortality. They had a complex set of rituals to be practiced and dogmas to be accepted. It was common to believe that the particular god they worshipped had died and then been resurrected. This is a carryover of the ancient fertility ritual from which many of these cults grew. You know the god dies in winter, and then in the spring when things are reborn, the god comes back to life. And that's the original source of the idea of a god dying and then being resurrected. And there's a great similarity even down to tiny details. For instance, Mithraism, which was associated with sun worship, uh, held that December 25th was a major holiday because it was the day of the sun's rebirth after the winter was over. And Christianity, many centuries later, decided since they couldn't stamp out that pagan festival, they would make it the day of Jesus' birth. But by what we know, he was born, I think, in June. I'm not sure. Now, uh, one of these cults was, of course, that of a group of Jews, the cult of Jesus. Starting off as an obscure reform movement within Judaism, it was soon made into a distinct mystery cult, a new religion, primarily owing to the efforts of St. Paul. In its essence, that is, its basic philosophic content and promises, it was not very much different from all the others flourishing at the time. Nor was it immediately very popular. There was an awful lot of competition uh, uh, for, uh, among these mystery cults for followers. Even in the third century AD, for instance, which is hundreds of years after Jesus, it was uh, considered far less significant by the educated man of the time than many other cults. It was written off in effect as an obscure and somewhat crackpot Jewish sect. Now, I don't have to tell you in this room, living in the 20th century, who won in this competition. Um, uh, the reason it won is essentially owing to tactical, strategic, propagandistic methods rather than to its distinctive ideological content. Now, for details, I have to ask you to see any good history. But, for instance, um, typical mystery cult only catered to men, following the ancient prejudice in favor of the superiority of men. Christianity emphasized equally the soul of women. And that gave them a big leg up on the other cults right off the bat. And of course, Christianity had an immense tactical advantage in the following fact. There were a lot of people who wanted to play it safe. And so they would join three or four different mystery cults, figuring if this one doesn't have the key, the other one will. Christianity was one of the few that would not permit that. Christianity said, if you join any other, you cannot join us. And if you join us, that's it. Uh, and that was enormously impressive to people who thought they really must know what they're talking about if they are willing to stake everything on their view. Now, it's considerations of this sort that is essentially responsible for the success of Christianity in this competition. 
course, it wasn't called Christianity in the early centuries, but it came to be called Christianity as time went on. What is the philosophy of Christianity? That is the subject of the next lecture. Thank you very much. Please comment on the view. Uh, I'm going to favor the questions I suggested because that was all material in the lecture, so. Please comment on the view that although certainty is impossible, probability is. Yes, that view represents a fundamental fallacy, in objectivist terms, the fallacy of the stolen concept. Um, probability means a evidential state in which there is a considerable amount of evidence in favor of a conclusion, but the evidence is not conclusive. In that sense, it is contrasted on the one side with certainty, in which you have conclusive evidence, and on the other side with simply possibility, in which there is some, but not very much evidence. Probability is an assessment of the amount of evidence. Now it obviously, therefore, presupposes the possibility of knowledge. All of the items of evidence which together warrant your statement of probability are themselves certainties. They are pieces of knowledge in relation to the hypothesis that you are saying is probable. If you had no knowledge, you could never claim anything to be evidence, and consequently you could never make any such distinction as possible versus probable versus certain. Further, if there is no such thing as certainty, there is no meaning then to the phrase conclusive evidence, because nothing would constitute conclusive evidence. We could never form such a concept. If so, what would be the meaning of inconclusive evidence? If I told you all we have are non-gloops, and you said to me, what's a gloop? And I said, gloops are unattainable by man. You'd say, well, if gloops are unattainable, non-gloops are meaningless. Well, probability is the negation of certainty. It is inconclusive state of evidence. If we cannot attain conclusive state, then that becomes an empty concept, and no negation of it has any meaning. And in that sense, it's a complete stolen concept. There's much more, but I'm going to say some things about skepticism in Lecture 12. Next, if evil uh, is non-godness, that's Plotinus, doesn't this still imply non-omnipotence on the part of God? Well, you mean there's something he can't do? Yes, in a certain way it does, because it's still restricting God by logic. The argument is, well, after all, you can't expect God to create without his creation being something other than him. That's inherent in the very meaning of creation or emanation. And therefore, it would be a contradiction if God were to create something which wasn't not him. And therefore, uh, uh, the laws of logic themselves prohibit God's uh, uh, doing it. Now, whether this is a limitation on God's all-powerfulness depends upon whether or not you regard adherence to the laws of logic as a limitation on God's power. Now, the typical Christian would say that is not a limitation on God's power. They would say, God has to adhere to the laws of logic, but after all, any contradiction is not even conceivable. And consequently, when you say God can't perform contradictions, you are not saying there is something conceivable to man which God can't do. Contradiction is actually meaningless. And therefore, they would say God's inability to create contradictions is not a limitation on his power because a contradiction is simply outside the problems of the mind to grasp. That's what the Aristotelian Christians tried to say to get around this point. 
the real religious Christians took the bull by the horns and they said, to hell with logic. God is so powerful, he could violate the laws of logic them themselves if he wanted to. And in fact, does so all the time. And there was one of them, for instance, Damiani was his name, beloved of existentialists, a Christian mystic, who said that God is so powerful that once the past has taken place, God could retroactively abolish it. <laughs> now that's what you call all-powerful. <laughs> the only other people claiming that power are the Soviet uh, uh, officials. <laughs> what is the objectivist explanation of the liar paradox? The liar paradox has as much plausibility as if I were to come into you and say, a dog is and isn't an animal. True or false? Then if you say to me, well, you said he is, and I said, yes, but I said he isn't. So if he is, he isn't, and if he isn't, he is. You'd say to me, there is not a paradox proving anything about human logic. It simply shows that if you utter a contradiction, you are going to get contradictory results from it. Now, implicit in any statement that you make and put forth for someone to consider is the, unless you're engaged in open deception, uh, is the pre prefix, the following is true. What I'm about to say is true. If the content of your utterance is what I'm saying is false, then your initial statement is, it, what I am saying is true and it isn't, which is simply a blatant contradiction. From that, you do not ask what follows. You ask the guy to go home and make up his mind. <laughs> uh, now, there are a thousand forms of this particular liar paradox. Uh, but uh, they all come down to, they start with a contradiction and then blame human reason for it. And then, of course, Bertrand Russell attaches to such a alleged paradox and bastardizes the whole of human knowledge in order allegedly to solve it. But that's something you need to know modern philosophy for, to appreciate that such a phenomenon, uh, such an abnormal phenomenon is possible. Have there been any psychological hedonists who were not ethical hedonists? Yes, I can't offhand think of the names, but in theory, I've met that type. And their reasoning is simply this. If man is necessitated to pursue pleasure and has no choice about the running of his life, morality is simply out of the picture. It's a waste of time. There's no use telling a piece of chalk once you throw it out the window. By the way, it's your moral obligation to fall. Because if the chalk could hear you, it would answer back, don't bother telling me, I'm going to do it anyway. And if man is necessitated to pursue pleasure, so, it's, so this type argues, it's senseless to build any ethical theory, even a hedonistic kind, on its basis. And that, of course, is valid. But it presupposes, of course, that, that um, determinism is incompatible with morality. Um, which uh, leads me directly to the next question. What is the current method used by determinists to grapple with the problem of freedom and morality? Well, the method which goes back a few centuries, is called soft determinism. There's two types of determinists today, hard determinists and soft determinists. The name was given by William James, who was himself an indeterminist. Uh, and he thought that soft determinists were, in effect, soft in the head, uh, which, about which he is correct. 
and therefore he gave the name as a pejorative term, but it stuck and it's now used technically. A soft determinist is anybody, in essence, who says determinism and morality are perfectly compatible. How do they get that? Well, as follows. Morality, they say, is one of the factors that will determine people in the future. If we have moral uh, injunctions and we say to people, you should do this and you shouldn't do that, the very advocacy of those views becomes one of the determining factors which will shape human behavior. So everything is necessitated. Nothing could happen differently. But by promoting certain moral ideas and repudiating others, we thereby sh uh, uh, take onto ourselves the power to determine the future of humanity. Needless to say, a soft determinist will say, yes, I grant you, I myself have no choice but to advocate what I advocate. But uh, such is determinism, and that doesn't bother me, he'll say. Now, they say, we must, however, make a big, dis big distinction. For instance, take the theory of punishment. When we punish someone, which we justify in our soft determinist grounds that the punishment will have good consequences, we're not punishing him in the name of retribution for his past uh, crimes. Retribution, they grant, would be unfair because after all, the person couldn't help what he did. He had no choice. What then is the justification of punishment? It's desirable social consequences. You punish an individual if, for instance, you thereby deter him or others from engaging in antisocial behavior, as they would put it. Or, you punish him in order to rehabilitate him, or you punish him to remove him from harming others. In other words, the justification of punishment is, quote, utilitarian. That is to say, it's concerned with the benefits on society. And they say society is more important than the individual. And therefore, we have two contrasting theories of punishment, the so-called retributive theory and the utilitarian theory. The retributive theory, characteristically held by free willists, says that you should punish a man only if he volitionally committed a crime, in which case the justification of the punishment is justice, retribution, paying him back for what he did. The uh, soft determinist says this is unfair because no one had any choice about what they did. The justification of punishment is its utilitarian social consequence. This, of course, leads them to monstrous problems, uh, not the least of which is what is wrong then with punishing an innocent man who has done nothing whatever if you can show that it leads to desirable social consequences. And uh, soft determinists try every kind of trick to get out of that and 15 other equivalent type of objections. But they are the, that is the full collectivist, altruist mentality that cannot conceive of the individual as the unit in ethics and so it's open to all of the objections to collectivism. How do you reconcile free will with causality? In essence, very simply. You do not equate causality with mechanism. Causality, as uh, implied by Aristotle and as explicitly endorsed by objectivism, states that Everything that happens, happens as a result of the nature of the acting entity. That given an entity with a certain nature, in a certain set of circumstances, it can only perform one type of action. This, as a metaphysical proposition, does not yet state what 
kinds of entities there are or what kinds of actions they can perform. It leaves that question wide open as a metaphysics. Now, if you have an independent proof that man has volition, that he does have choice, and uh, I assume you're familiar with the objectivist view that man's direct area of choice is whether to focus his mind or not, to think or not, and that everything else is a causal consequence of that choice. But assuming now there's an independent proof of that, that is in no way a violation of the law of cause and effect. A certain type of entity, namely man, under certain circumstances, namely he's sane, grown up, uh, past a certain age, he's a conscious and awake, etc., has an undamaged brain and so on, has only one action possible to him, namely to choose. And that is the type of action that he has. And he must perform it. It is causally necessitated. Uh, the proof of the inescapability of it and the causal necessity of choice is the plaints of the existentialists who go around bewailing the fact that they can't get around choosing. It's caused, you see. Choosing is caused. But now, since it's choice we're talking about, that means the selection of alternatives as a self-generating entity without being necessitated to one alternative rather than the other. In a word, choice is a subspecies of caused action and is in no way incompatible with or in violation with uh, of uh, the principle of causality, if you understand causality in the Aristotelian and not in the mechanistic, atomistic uh, sense of the term. Uh, I'll try to get through, well, let me just see by a show of hands how many have questions on the floor, because I promised all day. At the very back, Does Plotinus' theory of the world's soul bear any relation to Hegel's theory of the world's spirit? I suppose it does in certain ways, and there is a definite influence of Plotinus on Hegel. I would just as soon, however, pass that by, because to explain would take some time and would be beyond anybody who doesn't know Hegel, and you cannot synopsize Hegel uh, briefly. On the whole, however, it has been often said that certain followers of Plotinus anticipated Hegel. But actually, anything in the ancient world is very far removed from anything in modern Romanticist philosophy, certainly Hegel. There is a similarity, though. There was even an anticipation of the dialectic process, Hegel's dialectic threefold process in, uh, who was it? I think it's Iamblichus, who was one of the followers of Plotinus. I have another question, yes. Try and restrict it to the material here. Yeah. Oh, what was the argument of the skeptics to show that the syllogism is invalid and presumably what is the answer to it? Now, this is an argument accepted by many brilliant philosophers to this day, including John Stuart Mill, Francis Bacon, and several others. It claims that all syllogistic reasoning by its nature commits the fallacy of begging the question. You know, the fallacy of begging the question is the fallacy, I think we've discussed that in the question period of using or assuming what you're trying to prove as part of the proof. And they say that the syllogism necessarily commits this fallacy. Why? Well, take the uh, syllogism, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. Now, if it is to be a valid argument, we have to be able to know the premises prior to the conclusion. But take the premise, all men are mortal. That is a statement about all men. 
Consequently, they say, you would have to know independently that it's true of all men in order to be able to say it. But since Socrates is a man, you'd have to know it was true of Socrates to be able to say all men are mortal. But if you have to know it's true of Socrates to say that all men are mortal, then you're simply going in a circle to say all men are mortal, therefore Socrates is. And therefore, the conclusion of any syllogism, and indeed of any deductive argument, is in that way assumed in the premises, and therefore you learn nothing new by syllogistic reasoning. Uh, it's all circular. That was Francis Bacon's, one of his main challenges to the syllogism, and John Stuart Mill. What is wrong with this? What is wrong with it is a fundamental failure to grasp the phenomenon of abstraction. What is wrong with it is human beings are capable of grasping that all men are mortal without ever knowing that such an entity as Socrates existed. You grasp generalizations by induction from certain instances, and then assuming you have an appropriate methodology, generalizing to include the entire class on the basis of your concept of man. Therefore, you do not have to know anything about Socrates to validate the proposition all men are mortal. Now, true enough, the conclusion is implied by the premise, but that is the criterion of any valid reasoning. It is not presupposed by the premise, which is a big difference. Or as W.D. Ross puts this point, begging the question is when the conclusion is contained in the premise itself. The conclusion of a syllogism is contained only in the combination of the two premises, which have to be put together, and that's precisely what reasoning consists of. And therefore, the real meaning of it is they object to reasoning because it's reasoning. And if that were so, then of course you couldn't come to any conclusion. What is the status of this argument? All syllogisms are question-begging. This is a syllogism, therefore it's question-begging. Well, did they have to know that this syllogism was question-begging to know that all syllogisms are question-begging? If so, they're begging the question. And uh, you see what I mean? These people steal concepts right and left. <laughs> it's grand larceny. Um, did Aristotle have any significant effect at all on the several centuries immediately following his death? Significant effect? In the sense I would mean significant, no. Uh, several of his individual doctrines, his school went on, right on, and he had some very intelligent followers, Theophrastus in particular, but uh, no, uh, no real effect of his overall distinctive approach. Who was the father of individual rights? Well, I'll give you five different answers. Aristotle, by laying the metaphysics of the reality of the individual. The Stoics, by being the first to grasp the metaphysical equality of all men. John Locke, by being the most influential definer of the concept of individual inalienable rights to life, liberty, property. George Washington and the founding fathers who started the first country to grasp and be implemented on the principle of individual rights. Ayn Rand, who was the first one to give a complete philosophic system from metaphysics and, most crucially in this context, ethics, validating the concept. Those five. Uh, from the floor, yes. 
uh, it seems strange in a way. Why should Stoicism, skepticism, and so forth pervade six centuries of mankind, but not Aristotelian? Why didn't Aristotle catch on in the way all these others did? I'm asked that question all the time. Uh, the only thing I can say is uh, what I said uh, essentially so far. Namely, a philosophy's effect is determined by its ethics. If its ethics is deficient, that is a mortal blow to the possibility of it guiding men at large. Aristotle's ethics is deficient. It's streaked with Platonism. And uh, you must understand something. Everything I presented to you in uh, about Aristotle is correct. I didn't distort or, you know, make him better than he is. But I'll tell you something perfectly frankly, if it's of any help to you in this connection. When I first read Aristotle, I did not appreciate his value. I could not understand why Ayn Rand was such an admirer of Aristotle. Now, I say in my own defense, I was a teenager, and I didn't know very much of anything, but I couldn't get it. He said a few good things, but he said so many wrong things, I simply couldn't grasp. In other words, I'll put it to you this way. Prior to my being an objectivist, I was not able to appreciate Aristotle. And I think to a large extent, this is true of mankind as a whole. You can grasp the real values of Aristotle, given the nature of the manuscripts we have and the mixture as he presents it, only when you see the distinctive doctrines presented pure as part of a whole integrated philosophy, including above all an integrated ethics and politics. But that's hindsight, you see. To the people at the time, Aristotle didn't come across as an anticipation of Ayn Rand. <laughs> Uh, they saw him as a philosopher for a philosophic elite uh, writing about a city-state which had passed into history, and the question was what to do here and now. Now, I don't say that that's a full explanation. Uh, you simply can't get around the fact that however primitive and ignorant the time was, here was a genius who was ignored. And there has to be some dishonesty on the part of some people to account for this fully. But that's an area I don't care to get into as a philosopher. Um, please discuss the issue of life versus happiness versus pleasure as the standard of value in an ethics. Yes. First, let us take the um, issue of hedonism versus eudaimonism, life versus happiness. What's the difference? Well, in general, there's two main points. Hedone, or pleasure, is, uh, as the Greek term was used, exclusively an emotional state, a state of feeling a certain kind of enjoyment or satisfaction. Whereas eudaimonia, as we saw last time, is a much broader concept, involving a total way of life, not only emotion, but thought, achievement, action. And secondly, hedone, pleasure, is a short-range, temporary feeling. You experience pleasure for a minute, or if you're lucky for an hour, but it doesn't go on in perpetuity. Uh, it's, it's broken with intervals of indifference or pain, etc. And so the good life for the hedonist consists of having as big a number of discrete, pleasurable experiences as you can, having a sum of, in effect, disconnected separate pleasures. In this sense, hedonism is a 
short-range mentality in ethics. It simply wants as much discrete units of enjoyment as it can get. Whereas eudaimonia is a much more philosophic approach. Happiness represents a, an enduring, long-range state of the total person, a character attribute in effect, not an ephemeral feeling. And you see, we can talk about, for instance, a happy person, but you wouldn't talk about a pleased person as a character attribute. One is ephemeral, the other is enduring. So in these respects, these two respects, eudaimonism is, of course, much superior as an ethical standard to hedonism. Now, I should add, however, that uh, very often today, the word happiness is used by hedonists as simply a long-range preponderance of pleasure over pain. That is, they interpret the concept hedonistically. And that being so, a hedonist will talk uh, completely indifferently of pleasure or happiness, and so the distinction here collapses. This is simply of, of historical point of the relation between Aristotle and the eudaimonist, uh, and the hedonist. Now, as to um, uh, the objectivist view, objectivism opposes any theory which makes an emotion, whether long-run or short-run, a standard of value. Objectivism says, and for details I refer you to Ayn Rand's work on the objectivist ethics, uh, the opening essay in The Virtue of Selfishness, uh, because that discusses the issue explicitly. Objectivism holds that happiness, uh, enjoyment of life, can properly be the ultimate purpose of ethics, but never the standard. Now, by an ethical standard, we mean that criterion, that measuring rod, by a reference to which we determine the value or virtue of any other candidate. Is this action right or wrong? By reference to this standard. Is this action, uh, quality good or bad? By reference to this standard. Is this purpose desirable or undesirable? By reference to this standard. Now, if your ethics is to be objective, your standard must be a fact, not a feeling. It must be something that you can prove objectively, Israel de de determines a necessary set of derivative values. Now, if the life of the organism is the standard, that is a fact, and it has definite objective requirements regardless of who feels what. And you have an objective ethics. But if happiness is the standard, well, then the first question is, what is happiness? It's an inner emotional state. And what kind of state? It's a state that comes from per achieving your values. Well, it presupposes you have a code of values then. What was the standard of that code and where did you get it from? Now, if an emotion is a response to values, then to make an emotion the standard is to make your response to values the standard of values. But a response to values presupposes a code of values. So you're going in a hopeless circle. And the result is that anybody who takes an emotion as the standard is philosophically parasitic. He is actually, in fact, regardless of his protestations, simply taking over, eclectically usually, the values generated by philosophers who do not hold emotions as the standard. He's accepting and absorbing them, reacting on the basis, and then using his subjective emotion as the standard. Now, Aristotle did not intend to be subjective. That's why he insisted that eudaimonia was not simply emotion. But, of course, it did include it, and it is a serious error 
And in that one respect, Aristotle's ethics does incline towards subjectivism. Uh, now, I don't mean to suggest that Ayn Rand chose life as the standard because she, she wanted an objective ethics and that was the only way to get one. That would be the primacy of consciousness. She proved that life is the standard. So uh, it's not that she had a desire, so she distorted ethics in order to satisfy it. That would be the primacy of consciousness. Uh, do I have another one? Uh, do you want to stay five minutes again extra? Do, do I have another uh, question from... Oh, well, this is hopeless. <laughs> from the floor. A gentleman in a gray. The mathematical logic of Russell and Whitehead I don't want to comment on here. In its philosophic foundations, it is thoroughly corrupt. Thoroughly corrupt. It represents an attempt to have logic divorced from concepts altogether. Uh, uh, if you're a student of the course, I'll tell you simply this much. It represents an attempt to have logic on the basis of a denial of universals of any kind, Platonist, Aristotelian, or any other. The name for the viewpoint that there are no universals, the typically skeptic view on that question, is called nominalism. It's part of the lecture when we get to uh, Hobbes, <coughs> who is the first influential modern nominalist. And I will, at that point, make a big fuss about nominalism, about as big a fuss as I made about platonic realism, and define it and explain it and give the arguments. And only on that basis will you understand uh, Principia Mathematica and modern symbolic logic. Uh, but in that respect, it was the theory of universals that was started by the sophists and the skeptics, and that had its followers in the medieval period and be was, however, peripheral until the Renaissance. And then Hobbes picked it up, and uh, Barclay and Hume and Locke, to a certain extent, took it over. And the result was the complete triumph of skepticism. But I'm getting ahead of the story here. Try to confine your questions to the material covered in the lecture. Now, I just answered that one. Sorry, I can't read the handwriting. Will this lecture series ever be published in some form? Ever is a very big question. Um, in some form, at some time, I hope to. But uh, that will be decades from now. Because uh, I'd like to finish one book before I start another. I don't mean that it, it will take me decades to finish one, but... <laughs> Discuss the Stoic answers to the problem of evil. Well, here's five that I noted down. To begin with, nothing is really evil because you should be apathetic toward everything. You should understand that the only thing that's really good is virtue. And therefore, uh, in that respect, there's no point in uh, worrying about the problem. There is no real evil except what you yourself are responsible for, namely vice. Now, of course, this raised to the Stoics, uh, the critics of the Stoics quickly hastened to say, well, if nothing is really good or evil, why are you should, are you, should you be in such a rush to provide these unimportant things to other people? In other words, if, for instance, health is unimportant, why put yourself out to 
foster other people's health, which you should do as an altruist, according to the Stoics. If money is unimportant and it's not really good, why bother to give it to other people, etc.? Well, the Stoic answer to that was a really petty, word-chopping distinction. They said it's true that nothing is really good or evil, except virtue, of course, and vice, <coughs> but certain things are advantageous and others are not, and you should therefore strive to give the advantages to other people, even though they're not really good. Well, of course, the question is, is the advantages really good or not? And uh, their opponents had a lot of fun with them. Another point the Stoics made, since they weren't committed to official uh, dogmatic view of God, is that God was limited. In effect, he's doing the best he can, but he's got a dirty job. <laughs> Another point that they made was, if there was no evil, we'd have no opportunity for virtue. The essence of virtue is acceptance. And if uh, your wife was never run over, you'd never have a real chance to show how virtuous you were. Another uh, somewhat better point they made was, after all, God works through necessary causal laws. A world of laws is much better than a world without laws. But a world which has natural laws has to function accordingly. And if the natural laws result in the lava trickling down on the Italian village, there's no way out of that situation. If God suspends the law, it would be worse still because then we'd be living in a chaotic world. Now this, you see, is a better point, much better point. The only problem with it is it takes law outside the province of God. If you then combine that with the fact that law is inherent in the nature of existence, you destroy the whole possibility of a God with any power at all because everything happens then by the nature of existence. So that's a good argument, but it ruins God. <laughs> Another one is the so-called author analogy. If you wrote a novel, and you put a villain in it, and you were one of the characters in the story. From your point of view, the villain is a very bad thing. But from the point of view of the reader of the story as a whole, the villain adds spice, drama, conflict, value. In the same way, from you are actors, so to speak, in God's play. From your limited point of view, if somebody sticks a knife in your back, that's evil. But if you could see the whole play, including the final act, you would see that it's a much better story that way. <laughs> now, unfortunately, you cannot see the whole play. So that comes back to the point that if only you could see everything from God's point of view, you would see that it's, e that it's all good. I may say the same reasoning can be used in reverse and was in the medieval period. There were people who said, we believe everything is evil. Everything has an evil purpose. Now, it seems that some things are good, but that is simply a snare set by the devil to trap man and prevent him from committing suicide so the devil can torture him longer. Now, the logic of that argument is exactly the same as the other side uh, and has nothing more to recommend it. The facts are some things are good and others are not, and you cannot escape that fact. Uh, there's one question that I carried around from last week. Uh, because I thought it was a good question. I look over these, believe it or not, between the weeks, and I try to pick the ones that are good and do them. So let me end on this one tonight. It's on Aristotle, and it says, why is mind potentiality in man, and yet perfect self-consciousness, the perfect self-consciousness of the unmoved mover, in other words, his mind, is pure actuality? Isn't this inconsistent? 
Well, Aristotle would say no, because these minds operate entirely differently. Their modes of thought are different. The human mind passes from potentiality to actuality. It thinks in a moving process, whereas God contemplates statically. And so his mental method is radically different from man's. And therefore, it's not a contradiction to say the mind in one case is potential and the mind in the other case is actuality. But there's an additional point. The mind also has an element of actuality, the human mind, for Aristotle, and that is the so-called active reason, which in that respect is akin to God's mind. Aristotle describes it as pure actuality. You know, that impersonal spark that, uh, in effect, operates our minds. And from that point of view, there is a definite parallel between the human mind and the divine mind. And many of the medievals construed unwarrantably, but nevertheless, the active reason as simply God uh, in his guise of influencer of man's thought, which is not in Aristotle. Uh, one last point on the act of reason. Uh, someone asked last week, uh, was Aristotle's motive in any part to pres in postulating the act of reason to preserve the objectivity of human thought by means of saying that we are not guided in our thinking by secret Freudian or Marxist type passions, but by impersonal dedication to truth. And I did not emphasize that. In the text as it has come down to us, there is no such emphasis. But in looking up that point, I see that that is a common interpretation of Aristotle. I can't say what it's based on, but it would certainly be compatible with his view, and that may very well have been part of his motivation. Uh, although I don't think that the doctrine of the active reason as it's come down to us is the best way to defend the objectivity of the mind. All right, we're very late, so I apologize for being so overlong. We'll draw a line here. This course continues with Lecture 7.